Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. Morning, all. There's not much you can do about it when you look at newspapers or uh, red tops and broadsheets and what have you when it comes to COVID. Now, I know there's a big match tonight, of course, uh, the Ireland-Portugal game. You heard that in the news there. Uh, and that dominates one or two of the newspapers as well because they're talking about the granny rule. And it doesn't mean you can play from, a fr- if you're from overseas and your granny's from Ireland, you can play for the Irish team. No, no, it doesn't mean that anymore. It means uh, that footy fans heading to tonight's showdown with Portugal have been told, don't visit your gran afterwards, or your granddad for that matter. There'll be about 50,000 uh, supporters will be roaring Ireland against Ronaldo at the Aviva. And Tony Hoolan is saying, um, that's all very well. Um, not much you can do about that, but don't visit your grandparents. And if you're unvaccinated, stay away from the match. Uh, we in Cork have the highest COVID-19 rates uh, in the country, apparently, when you look at the last 14 days. One of the highest, I should say, to be absolutely accurate and fair. You're looking at 5,000 300 cases in the past two weeks right across the county. So that's a worry. There are also worries in Leitrim and Waterford and Carlow and Leash and Longford, Westmead, Donegal and Kerry. So we're not all we're not all alone there, but uh, it's certainly alarming when you look at all of the different front pages this morning. Like the Mail says, uh, there's been a warning now on the risks of Christmas parties. Tony Hoolan again, and actually urging the employers now to reconsider holding Christmas parties this year because cases continue to soar. They're also encouraging more people to work from home. Don't be going into the office if you can do it from home. And if you have social interaction planned, half it. Half the amount of people that you're going to mix with. Um, and again, the rule of thumb always is if you go into some place that's nuts, leave. Um, mind you, it's really strange because in the mirror this morning you have uh, Stephen Donnelly. And I was telling you he was saying this on Sunday and he said it again yesterday that office parties can go ahead this Christmas if it's done right. So who do you listen to? A politician, a health minister or Tony Hoolan? Um, so make up your own mind on that. I suppose if employers send out memos saying we're not having any Christmas parties this year Um, doesn't actually stop the staff from getting on and doing their own thing I suppose maybe maybe, you know different areas of work different groups of work could have smaller get togethers Um, don't know what will happen there but they're certainly talking about schools in all of the papers today particularly primary schools with a big big increase in the amount of kids that are from creches all the way up actually testing positive for, for COVID and they're also saying that perhaps there could be an issue now with regards to the Christmas plays that are being planned in schools with the mail saying that the rising cases is casting doubt on school Christmas plays so there's been a threefold increase then when you look at one particular age group 19 to 24 year olds and we know all of that and on top of that uh, they're saying that um, you know you cut down on who you go out with and cut down the amount of times that you go out like you should only go to the pub once and parties should be like once when once a day once a week once a month uh, but time is fast running out and turning the tide according to the front page of this morning's Irish Independent and with all of that happening then as you look towards Christmas and what have you be very careful if you're buying online from the UK because there could be a nasty sting in the tail and what you're buying online from the UK since Brexit because the mirror this morning says the choppers could be hit by as much as an extra 33% particularly if you're buying expensive items, they will cost you an awful lot more um, following Britain's exit from the EU. So be careful with that with regards to your VAT and your excise and your courier charges and all sorts of things like that. But I got an interesting delivery in the post. Um, the back end of, no, actually it was Monday morning, came into work and I 
and I got a, a cannabis joint, a hash joint delivered from uh, Martin Condon. So I will come back to that a little bit later on because he's sending out cannabis joints and cannabis jellies to uh, select individuals around the country. So it's nice to be included as uh, amongst the select individuals of 200 who got a joint in the post as to what I'm going to do with it. I have no idea. I'll talk to them later on about that. Um, but, but Graham Dwyer, as you know, is serving a life sentence for the murder of Elaine O'Hara, the depraved murderer, as they call him in the mirror today. He's formed a rock band uh, with uh, another um, bad piece of work, the rapist Stephen Barry. Apparently, by all accounts, according to the Red Tops this morning, um, he plays bass, by all accounts, uh, and almost every day they rehearse inside in jail, um, occupying the time, I suppose. And two other people that will soon be, or I should say probably are already in jail, are the two characters who um, were caught and involved in pop fraud. They were part of a bigger group that uh, ultimately sent much of the money back to Nigeria, I believe. They thought that there was up to a million to be made, apparently, these guys were on the front line and these were two of the characters that were inducing people to uh, send their data, their personal information uh, fraudulently because they thought that they were sending it to the court services for jury duty or for court summonses and things like that. Of course, they weren't. They were sending it to the likes of Bashiru and Lewis, uh, who in turn then... um, made pop claims on their behalf. So they were in court yesterday uh, for that kind of pop fraud. There'd be a lot more pop fraud cases making the courts, incidentally. And one got jailed for three years and the other got jailed for two and a half years. On top of all of that, like um, with Christmas in the offing, there's a lot of issues regarding, um, you know, people struggling and will even struggle more leading up to Christmas. Like the Echo this morning says that families in Cork are sacrificing the heating to pay for Christmas gifts to ensure that their children don't miss out on valuable childhood memories. And that's according to St. Vincent de Paul. And there will be shortages uh, this Christmas. I know there's a big, uh, there's a big, one of the big ticket items at the moment is PlayStation 5, isn't it? Big shortage of those. But to the list of that again, you could also add wine, apparently. According to the examiners, fan of fans of glasses of wine are facing a hangover from havoc, from the havoc that climate change has wreaked on this year's harvest and prices because of a bad harvest, historically bad apparently, there's less of it and it's going to cost you more. There's also less tanning stock apparently in the in the shops. So we're facing a fake tan shortage this winter. I mean, I don't think that's such a bad thing myself personally, I got to say. I don't use it, so maybe it's none of my damn business. But they're talking about problems with the key chemicals that are needed in the manufacture of this cosmetic product which of course is fake tan so I suppose there'll be sleepless nights and bedlam and nightmares over that uh, I, I don't know whether primarily it's women that use fake tan I don't know, I, probably not anymore, I guess men do too and then apparently because of boredom related to COVID and the change in your routine they are saying in the papers this morning that Irish shoppers are more likely to spend even more um, when Black Friday comes about, uh, perhaps up to 20 or 30% more just because of boredom. Uh, And that's a story that makes the papers today where they say, particularly with regards to laptops and iPads and televisions, they're the three ticket items
items, apparently. You could also put in PlayStation 5 into that, I'd say, followed by travel and hospitality, things like that. But apparently when they look, because they can tell everything you're Googling now, they really and truly can. They can look at all your search engine uh, clicks and everything, and they know what everybody's buying and how much you're spending. Very sadly, uh, Christmas will be a very different Christmas. In fact, there'll probably be no Christmas at all for the Byrne family. They make the front of the mirror today. Grieving parents, Fergal and Annette, who lost their boy, during the week, uh, wonderful, wonderful son, Harry. Um, and they um, revealed yesterday uh, that they're clearly heartbroken. They said, our dear Harry left us suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, and of course, he was hit in the throat by uh, a slitter in a freak accident, poking a ball around with his mates in the schoolyard. Awfully, awfully sad. There's a few travel-related stories, um, and I will come back to this later. Do you remember we were chatting about electric bikes and e-scooters, primarily the e-scooters that power along on their own? Um, It seems as if um, the Transport Minister, Eamon Ryan, has decided that e-scooter owners will not have to have a licence, will not have to pay any kind of road or motor tax and will not have to be insured under new legislation. So the new bill regarding travel and traffic and motoring and stuff like that won't invi- don't won't have scooters involved in any law whatsoever and e-scooters and the like will be treated the very same as a bicycle. So um be interested in your thoughts on that because apparently uh, there are Fianna Fáil backbench TDs who are raging over this. And there's another interesting one then that makes Cork Bio online this morning where Tommy Gould, the Sinn Féin TD, is slamming the scandalous price of a train from Cork to Dublin and back. For a family of two adults and two children, he says, it's up to 200 euro to travel up and down on an Irish train from Cork to Dublin. Two adults and two children. He says, you could travel up and back in the car and stop at the garage for a fill of petrol and snacks and food for half of that. And you know something? He's right. He said you could get a hotel room for less. So is it any wonder that people don't want to take the train and want to take the motor car instead? There's that and lots more besides. We'll come back to it throughout the morning. Text 0868104106. The Neil Prenderville Show. You know, if you had the climate for it, I suppose, and unlike a morning like this morning, who'd want a motor car or a motorbike going to work? We'd all be on e-scooters because we'd have no license, we'd have no insurance, we'd have no tax. Wouldn't have to pay any petrol, wouldn't have to pay anything like that, just plug it in from time to time. So at a motor, as a motorist or a motorcyclist, what are your thoughts on that? Text 0868104106. No um, restrictions, no mandatory license, taxes, insurance uh, on e-scooters and what have you. Um, to a really big problem in the life of anyone who's got an alarm going off constantly, constantly. It's an absolute head wreck. This is actually... A small little clip of it. And it's coming and has been coming from Washington Street for quite some time now. From the Indigo Brasserie, what's closed. Torture. Total torture. Sophia, good morning. Good morning. Did you tape that out your window or what did you do? Yeah, the, the video is out of my window. Okay, so how long has it gone off? It has been going on for almost three days now. Three days so has, and three nights. Yeah. 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 And who have you called about it? I've called the Garda and also the Cork City Council. What have they said? That they cannot do anything about it. Why can't yeah. they do anything about it? 
I actually have no idea. Is it because they said that they can't find the owner? Yeah, they said they are not allowed to go inside and also they don't know who the owner is. Right. So maybe that's a problem. Okay. And is it driving you crazy? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> can you can you get sleep or do you keep you awake at night? I hear it at night, especially because there are less cars. So it's hard to sleep. It is. And have you lived in that area long? I'm only living here for like this semester because I'm an international student. Good for you. Okay. But when you say that, are you here weeks or months living there? It's three to four months. Okay. And is that, that restaurant, I know the one you're talking about, it's as you, as you walk or drive up Washington Street, it's on the left-hand side by the river, isn't it? 16 Washington Street. That's been closed for a long, long time, isn't it? Yeah, I, since I'm here, it's closed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so if we could find them, whoever owns the property, they could turn it off for you. Isn't that the case? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because I don't think we, anybody could just go into the premises. That would be trespass, wouldn't it? It would probably be a crime. Yeah. Okay, all right. Because yes. I know that uh, Gary was in touch as well, who also posted another video. He's living in the area not too far from you, and he's demented as well. Yeah. So you're so you're not alone, all right? Yes, I am not. <laughs> okay. All right. So we need to find whomever owns or has a key for Indigo Brasserie on Washington Street so we can get that alarm turned off. So hopefully we'll have some luck with that. All right. So we'll stay in touch, okay? Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay, Sophia, take care. Cheers. Anybody know who's uh, in charge of or who owns or manages or rents Indigo Brasserie? Because that would wreck your head. Anybody that's had an alarm going off day and night for days and days on end. I mean, it would just totally and utterly wear you down. So let's see if we can get that one sorted. It's an early call to help, lads. Text 0868104106. Back after the break. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0868104106. Red FM. Okay, thank you. We've been getting texts already on alarms going off. It's also it's as bad as barking dogs or people who let their dogs out and they bark all day long and you're working from home or you're doing shift work at night or whatever the case may be or you're on a day off and you got barking, barking, barking. I came across a story recently in one of the Cork suburbs actually who said, that I can't, don't have it ever got on air at the time, but of someone who was actually in the business of minding other people's dogs and took in all of these dogs, right, um, by day, and all of the people who owned the dogs thought the dogs were being looked after. But in actual fact, all of the dogs were in the back garden and the owners of the house had legged it. So the dogs were just barking and barking and barking. The whole area just going berserk. I don't know if that ever got resolved or not. Anyway, somebody is saying that you should get on to and work out and have a look and see what the box on the alarm system says. You'll find the name of the installer and call them. Good idea, Sophia. Maybe you might want to do that. But would the installer be able to go into the premise or onto the premises without permission of whoever owns it or rents it? But it's the Indigo Brasserie. There's an extraordinary story. It's a video, actually. It's online. Um, I'm going to play some of the audio for, of it for you. But, but bear in mind, uh, this is actually a video, so I need to explain the intro. You may have seen it. It's uh, two different couples who were given the wrong baby um, by an IVF clinic who uh, mixed up um, the fertilized embryos. Right? So two different couples got each other's fertilized embryos and gave birth uh, to babies. Um, which were not theirs. They were each other's babies. And it, it took some time before it was actually discovered. Now, I know for sure that one couple are suing the Cardinales, Alexandra and Daphna. Um, and this is from 
September of 2019. They were undergoing IVF and they documented the story. They are suing. And in this audio clip, you're going to hear, you're going to hear Alexander. You're going to hear Daphna, but you will also hear their, their lawyer, Adam Wolf, jump in uh, from time to time. Now, if you see the video of it, and, and I know I was chatting to Emer about this yesterday, because the video I see, it's, it's clear to me that Alexander and his wife's baby is Hispanic from the color of the skin. But they say that it can sometimes take months before color actually takes hold on, in, any, in any baby's um, face or body. So I understand that. But what certainly has been proved now is that they have somebody else's biological baby because of a fertility lab mix-up. I mean, it's a real nightmare for anybody um, who's going through IVF or thinking about it. That Could it be ever possible that this could be happening a lot? That people are literally giving birth and rearing somebody else's baby because of a mix-up in fertilized embryos? Anyway, this is, this is the audio. It's, it's a really interesting, upsetting story. And bear in mind, from time to time, you'll hear, you'll hear their lawyer jump in as well. We always wanted two kids. That's just what we had in mind. It's what felt right for us. And we tried and tried and tried for years on our own naturally and weren't having any luck. Um, and then I turned 40 um, and I was like, uh, maybe we need a little help. Once we decided to do IVF, which um, Dr. Moore highly recommended, it, it did seem at the time that that was our best option. I knew it would be a lot mm-hmm. and it was it was we were just hoping it would be successful as everybody does but it turned out it wasn't it wasn't and so then so we had to go back to the drawing board we did it again this time it, it was successful i thought like just that's it i'm i'm settled and done my life is perfect no perfect when daphna gave birth she and alexander saw their baby and alexander knew right away that something very well may be wrong this baby looked nothing like them. Over time, Alexander started to become incredibly concerned. So much so that Daphna bought a genetic test for their baby and for them just to make sure, to allay his fears. The results of that test were shocking. Neither Daphna nor Alexander were related to the baby that Daphna birthed. The room like shrank and um I, I got like really dizzy and, and everything just went numb. I kind of stayed in that place for a long time. I think we were hoping if at least one of us was, was genetically related to her, then we could keep her. <laughs> but I think the biggest f- fear in all of this is like, am I going to lose my baby? <laughs> I'm going to lose my baby. And so... We want a baby for, like, so long. We go through so much to to make her. And there's so much to carry her because the pregnancy was tough. And birth her. And you have her. And then she's there. And she's perfect. And that kind of morphed over the next period of time to this panic all the time that someone was going to literally knock on our door and take her away and say, oh, that's my baby. Where is our embryo? And our biggest question, are we going to lose our daughter? We discovered pretty quickly 
um, is that Dr. Moore uses in vitro tech labs. And apparently there's a history of it being kind of a mess over there. Um, that there, there are other previous problems and previous lawsuits with that lab. I'd never even heard the name of that lab before. Yeah. He, he told us he did everything in house and it was like a, a one stop shop. As Dr. Moore and his office were starting to investigate what happened, we got different pieces of information that sent us on this roller coaster. We were freaking out every day being told a different thing. Dr. Moore and CCRH transferred Daphna and Alexander's embryo to a complete stranger too, so that a stranger had Daphna and Alexander's baby. I was in some kind of hell. It was just getting worse. Part of the bigger picture of this is that I really was just completely falling apart. We are in the wild west days of the American fertility industry. Fertility clinics can basically do what they want with virtually no oversight, with the most important aspects of our lives, the social fabrics of our family. There needs to be oversight, there needs to be regulation, there needs to be something in place, checks and balances to ensure that these types of tragedies don't happen. I was in the kitchen alone and I looked down at my phone and it says, this is a picture that the other family sent. And it was this beautiful little blonde baby and it said they, they, um, they, call, they her call her Zoe. Zoe. That got me. I don't just made it real that I had a that I had a little baby girl out there named Zoe that I didn't even know. They didn't even know she existed until that moment. She was three months old. But I looked at her and I was so aware that I just don't know her. I didn't know her at all. So I remember thinking, I was like, who are you? I don't know you. Which is a heartbreaking thing to think of your own daughter. Like, I don't know you. Who are you? Excuse me. The moment I met Zoe for the first time, she was so big. She's so big already. She was so big. She was. Not um, four months old. Almost, almost four months old. We missed all. We missed everything. We missed, like, the whole newborn phase we missed with her. We missed the whole pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I was losing a baby at the same time that I was getting a baby. So there's grief in them. And so then you start, your heart starts breaking for their family at the same time. Because at the same time, everyone's gaining a child, but everyone's losing a child at the same time. We had a five-year-old girl. It was the hardest thing in the world to have to tell Olivia, oh our older God. daughter. Like, God. Out of all of this, that's still the biggest trauma for me, is having it to... It continues to be the biggest, the biggest trauma. To have to explain to a five-year-old that the child, the, the sister that they've imprinted on in love, and it's their sister, is not their sister. I mean, she retreated a little bit from us. And to that point, we were all, like, kind of all just... We were all just kind of like... She was our best bud, right? 
and um, we were very close. And she stopped wanting to hug, and she doesn't let us hug her or kiss her anymore. She kind of has retreated a little bit. Try so hard to help her and to and to um, give her the support that she needs, but this has ultimately affected her in a, in a profound way that I can't I can't verbalize. That's a Los Angeles couple, Alexander and Daphna Cardinale. They were referencing their daughter there, Olivia, who's five years old and probably has uh, post traumatic shock now at this stage, having had. Uh, a little baby in her life for a number of months who she regarded as her sister taken away and replaced with another baby and that's all very well but she now wants to know where's her baby sister gone I mean it's just an incredible story also um, I think to to some extent it it could have been uh, something that was never ever resolved if it hadn't been a Hispanic family on one side and and a white family on the others do you know what I mean if it was just two Caucasian families then would they have ever known the difference and are there other stories like that but because apparently they said in particularly regarding this clinic that there have been all sorts of mix-ups in the past um, with the fertility lab that the clinic was using anyway I'm not casting us persons in anything with regards to Irish IVF but I thought it was an incredible story uh, they are now suing um, and uh, undoubtedly that will be becoming before the courts uh, but that's the story of Alexander and Daphne Daphna I should say and their daughter Zoe. Lines open at one 850 Your texts are welcome as always. Text 0868-104-106. And it was a busy day yesterday with text. We'll pick up on that and calls after the break. Talk to Neil Printerville now. 1851-04106. Red FM. Okay, I might be able to sort out that uh, alarm system for Sophia, so I'll come back to that in a few minutes' time. But I just want to take this opportunity to chat with Dr. Nula O'Connor because she stepped out of uh, her medical practice to chat with me. She's at Elmwood Medical Practice in Douglas. Dr. Nula, good morning. Good morning, Neil. No matter what day um, you, you look at the news stories, um, it's dominated by COVID. This morning, Cork's COVID-19 rates amongst the highest, reporting 5,500 cases in the last two weeks. Uh, the Red Tops and Broadsheets are warning about Christmas parties. Tony Hoolan is saying time is fast running out and that people have to change their behaviour. Um, and a three-fold case in ages 19 to 24 is issues in schools and creches. And much of it lands on the desk of our local GP. Isn't that right? And there's also seasonality because you have other issues to deal with too, am I right? Absolutely, um, uh, Neil. At the moment, uh, we're seeing uh, lots of people, uh, adults and children, uh, with symptoms of uh, infection, so um, sore throat, coughs, um, the croup, uh, sinus symptoms, aches and pains, you name it, we're seeing it. And it, it's it's like uh, uh, the normal type of winter, except that it, it started early. Every, everything, uh, because a lot of the normal winter viruses weren't around last year. Yeah, why is that? Why are they around this year but weren't last year? What's changed in that regard? Uh, well, we're so we're, we're we're getting together more. Uh, we're traveling more. So uh, seasonal viruses um, uh, they they travel um, around the globe, if you like. So so uh, travel has resumed. Um, people are socializing together. They're mixing more. And just at the moment, always in in the winter time, uh, we tend to actually socialize more indoors. We tend to have the windows closed. Um, so. 
any of these viruses, so just COVID um, and, and all of the other normal winter viruses, we now put COVID in inside with them. Yeah. Um, they love when we get indoors in a, a crowded, poorly ventilated indoor spaces. That's where this virus just loves to actually uh, connect. And has and the has flu become part of the mix now or is it too early for Not that? yet. Not yet. It's a little bit early. We have, And that's one thing I wanted to say. We have an opportunity. There's only uh, two confirmed cases of, of uh, influenza nationally. So the flu vaccine is available at the moment in GP surgeries and and in pharmacies. And it, we this last year we introduced flu vaccine for children aged two to seventeen. So it's a free vaccine, and it's not even an injection; it's a nasal spray. And uh, we know that unlike COVID, flu very much tends to spread among children, and it's the children give it to the adults right. rather than the other way around. So really important to actually, uh, if you haven't actually availed of that virus of uh, that vaccine for your for your children, please do so because we have time before the um, uh, full influenza seasons. We we can affect the trajectory of the influenza season because what we're trying to do at the moment with COVID nineteen, we're trying to um, to change the course of the current disease. We all know we're in a fourth wave, but what we know now, Neil, is we know how to actually flatten the curve again, get the numbers back down. Now, vaccination has been fantastic. We've had a huge uptake of vaccination in our eligible population. But you must remember, we have about 820,000 children under 12. And then we have a proportion of our adult population who haven't actually taken up the offer of vaccine. So the disease is circulating. And while the vaccine is giving those of us who have had it really good protection against severe disease, hospitalisation and death, it's not stopping us from picking up the disease and passing it on to others. So, we, But is it, why, why is there a problem if we're only passing it on to people who are by and large doubly vaccinated and a lot of them got a booster job? Yeah, because um, we know that obviously there the people who are unvaccinated. So we have unvaccinated adults um, and those are ending up in intensive care. The vast majority of people who end up seriously in intensive care um, have not been vaccinated, including uh, pregnant women. Right. OK, okay. Um, so uh, so that that's where it is. And there will always be people who won't mount the same response to a vaccine because their immune systems just can't do it. I mean, well, the I, vaccine is very good, but but um, and so they remain more vulnerable despite the fact that they have been vaccinated. I came across a very healthy uh, individual during the week who is doubly vaccinated. Um, and you would think very not a smoker, no, no underlying conditions is the best of my knowledge and he's had a couple of shocking days doubly vaccinated yeah. and with COVID yeah so, and the, the thing this is a funny but why virus, would that happen if, you, if, if it, because it's a funny virus it's a virus we're just learning about and it does this it affects it can affect very healthy people um in a strange way and it can affect their heart muscle, it can affect their lungs and they can become really, really ill. And of course, we also know that that a certain amount of people are susceptible to long COVID, even if they've had mild infection. So this is a nasty disease. And if you can prevent yourself getting it, you you should. But what we need to do at the moment, uh, Neil, there are two really, really important messages for your listeners out there. We need people to stay at home from work, school or crash if they have any symptoms of infection to stop 
all infection spreading, not just COVID, because it's the other infections along with COVID are starting to put pressure on our healthcare system. So in general practice, the vast majority of people that we see do not have COVID, but they have all the other viruses. Our paediatric wards are full of children with um, bad bronchiolitis and croup. It's now starting to affect our asthmatics or people with chronic lung disease, not just COVID, all of the other winter viruses. So we need people to stay at home to stop the spread of the virus is just take a couple of days out, get your PCR test um, uh, to make sure that it's actually uh, uh, not COVID. But the most, what I'm seeing with people is that people are doing, they're getting symptoms, they're doing an antigen test. And if the antigen test is negative, they're saying, oh, that's grand, it's not COVID, I'm okay to go out and about. Well, you're not, because even if it isn't COVID and the antigen test isn't perfect for, for testing that, um, you're spreading some other virus. And but why isn't that? I mean, that was always virus. that was always the case, though, with colds or sniffles or you know sinus Absolutely. issues. You just got on with your life, like. Uh, no, actually, um, uh, it has always. And, and if you look back, because um, uh, prior to COVID, I, I'm the GP who's been coming on talking about how to stop the spread of winter infections and how to help to keep antibiotics safe for future generations. And a lot of that has got to do with the very simple measures um, that we should all be doing is to stay at home if you're sick, uh, to uh, uh, cover your face and your your nose and your mouth with a mask. At the moment, we used to be saying uh, with tissues or cough into your elbow, uh, wash your hands and take some time out, allow your body to recover from whatever infection you have and try and avoid spreading it to others and especially to more vulnerable people within your uh, uh, group. Okay, okay. Uh, um, okay. Also, we need people just to please do um, get vaccinated. If there's somebody in your circle who's been hesitant about vaccines, just encourage them to read um, more on the HSE website, talk to a healthcare professional about what their concerns are about the COVID vaccine, but also please do get your flu vaccine if you're eligible, the pneumonia vaccine um, for people. But um, the the other, the way that we're going to get this virus under control is that if we could all just reduce our social contacts a little, okay? You just be, be careful, do a risk assessment. You, If everybody could decide to meet less people less often over the coming weeks. I know it's it's coming up to Christmas time. Um, uh, we all love to get together. Um, we like to socialise. That's what the Irish are about. We're not we're not telling people to stop socialising, mm. but maybe just to tone it back a little so that we can all have a lovely Christmas. Okay, and why then, if people are asked to tone it back or dial it down, are the schools still open? I mean, you know, from creches to play schools to primary to secondary. Kate says by text, COVID's rampant in creches. Our creche are amazing, but as she says, I'm hearing there are rooms being closed off in creches all over Cork and COVID's taking hold. Another text here from Anna says, COVID is everywhere. There are four teachers in my child's school out with it. Um, if it's a breeding ground for it, why are they in schools? It's our education of our children is really important. Our children have suffered very, very much um, because of the lack of socialisation within schools and the and the and the education. And um, it's really important that we keep our schools open. But if you close them for a week or ten days, wouldn't it break the no. link? No. No, what we need to do is it's the socialisation outside of schools that we actually need to pull back on for all of us. 
we all need to be a bit more careful and try to meet less people less often. We we need to, children need to be kept at home at the first sign of any type of symptoms. They need to be kept home. I mean, I do end up seeing children in the surgery who've been in school because they're in a school uniform and they're coming in to be seen by me uh, because of symptoms of infection and similarly with crashes. So if everybody could actually take that message on board at the slightest sign of symptoms, please Stay at home for a few days. That's how we can interrupt the spread of all infections and be able to keep our society going, keep our schools open, keep our workplaces open, keep our restaurants and hospitality open. Well, I get all that, but bizarrely then, bizarrely then you would see tonight Ireland playing Portugal at the Aviva where 50,000 people will be in the Aviva Stadium, um, vaccinated and unvaccinated. What's the point in giving messages to people to dial back your socialisation when you have 50,000 together? cheek and jowl at a soccer match yeah I think it's a fair point Neil (laughs) you would prefer if they didn't I suppose is it (laughs) that's not for me to decide that's a government decision All right. well it's just okay well okay thanks for responding to that but uh, I also hear that are doctors actually seeing people again now Nula or is it phone consultations or, or a mix of both or what yeah well, well uh, GPs have never stopped seeing people. I, we've certainly never stopped seeing people in our practice. But what we're doing is we're doing a risk assessment. So what I don't want to happen is that I have somebody sitting in a waiting room who could potentially pass on an infection to somebody else. So what we do in, in our practice is that in, everyone is screened for symptoms of infection when they ring to make an appointment. If they have symptoms of infection, they're asked, do you, is it just doctor's advice that you would like or do you feel that you or your child need to be seen face to face? Many people are just happy with, with a telephone or video consultation because they just want to talk things through. They're not particularly worried about themselves. So those are triaged to a, to a phone call or a video consultation. And the other people then, what we ask them to do is to wait in their cars and uh, when we're ready for them, um, um, I would put on my, my protective gear. I bring them straight up into my room, see them, examine them straight out so they don't go near reception, they don't go near into, into the waiting room. And afterwards then, I can just decontaminate my room before I see them. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know. And is that why, but why I read that doc- doctors are said to be completely and utterly exhausted? Well... It, it, we're 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 tired. I mean, the whole of the healthcare service is tired. I think I think the nation is tired of COVID. Uh, but we've been dealing with COVID in 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 the workplace now um, since since March 2020. Um, so you know, it's just been a long haul for us, um, and uh, we're working at a at quite a busy level in general practice. And we're just asking people to be patient with us. You know, there there is no difficulty. We will see you. We will get you. But we do have to prioritise. And it's the same in the hospitals. We need to make sure that we see people safely um, uh, to protect everybody. Um, and so that means that maybe some of the more routine stuff. So, you know, you want to come to have your diabetes checked, uh, you know, your heart disease, whatever. All of the other stuff. Maybe we can't do it on that particular day because we're dealing with a lot of people with infection. So we're just trying to manage the workload and we were just to ask people to, to understand Okay, that but I understand. Yeah, it. okay. But also, Cork, you're reporting uh, on Lee's side that there are more and more GPs now are not in a position 
or don't want or can't, for whatever reason, take new patients. Um, they checked in with uh, one that said, um, no, we're not taking any new patients and we won't for 12 months. Another says that it's horrible having to turn people away. We don't know whether they're our first port of call or their 10th port of call, but we can't take them. Turn us across medical centre. Don't anticipate being able to take any new patients for the next 12 months. Is that an indication of a lack of doctors? Yes, absolutely. We do have um, a, a problem with GP workforce um, and uh, the, Irish, the Irish College of General Practitioners and the I, I, Irish Medical Organisation have been talking about this for the last 10 years because we haven't trained enough doctors. Um, and also what has happened is we lost a lot of doctors uh, to uh, going abroad, less so in, in, in recent years. But which is it then? Um, is it that we didn't train enough or we did train them and they left? Which one? It's, 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 it's a complicated picture. It's a mixture of both. And, and uh, some people train in general practice, but they perhaps then decide to, to move into a different area in medicine. Essentially, right across the health service, Neil, we need more people. We need more doctors. We need more do- nurses. We need more consultants. Uh, we need more support staff, physiotherapists, speech therapists. You know, there, there are, we have gaps in our health service, which are, I suppose, what happened with COVID is, um, you know, it really opened up the cracks that we have um, within our healthcare service in terms of... They're uh, far from cracks. Man, they're they're entire chasms. They're glacial caverns. Um, there's 100,000 Irish children on waiting lists and there's 908,000 adults on waiting lists. They say it will take 15 years yeah. to clear them. Yeah, it's it's very difficult, and I really do um, empathise with people out there who are on those um, uh, waiting lists, um, and uh, uh, hopefully um, uh, that there will be um, uh, strategies put in place to try to address. And I do know that this is not my particular area. I know. I'm just saying that there are yeah. big, big issues. It's very difficult, yeah. and it's very difficult. Okay. It's very difficult saying to people, "I'm really sorry, we actually can't take you on as a patient," but there are only so many people that we can see safely um, within a day. Okay. How many waves of COVID have we had now? Is this the fourth or the fifth wave? This is our fourth. Okay. So what's the point? We, on four different occasions, you know, and maybe there'll be a fifth, I don't know. People were, people were asked to break the chain and break the link and dial it down. And people did, you know, since March of last year. It's, it's made no difference. Why will this make any difference? I mean, surely this is just the way it's going to be. Yeah, no, it will make a difference and it has made a, diff- a difference. Oh, I know, but will they be asked again next January and will they be asked again then, I don't know, in, in April and again in October, you know? Well, at the moment, um, so as part of this is actually quite unpredictable and, and that's part of the problem, Neil, and dealing with uncertainty I think is difficult for all of us. So all of what we can do is we have to take it week by week um, uh, and month by month. Um, one would hope um, that the uh, current vaccination, um, if, you, if, you, if you take it back to each of the various different waves, um, we now have a more open society than we've ever had before, which is wonderful. Oh, I know, but we... Um, and we... The Latin, and we, don't, we don't want to actually go backwards. We also know that the vaccination rates, which have been really, really good in this country are giving us a wall of protection which is resulting in less severe disease. So while the the case numbers are high at the moment, we're not getting as many people in hospital or in intensive care as we had before. Okay, and that's making all now the with the booster programme, we're seeing already 
that we're getting a reduction in the numbers of people in the 80 plus who we boosted first and hopefully that's going to move on down to the 70s and the 60s and are immunocompromised. But this is, you know, COVID, it's been described as a disease that keeps on giving. Yeah. We're learning all the time. It's a new virus. What we need to do, Neil, is we need to concentrate on what we know, what we know works now and what we can do in the run-up to Christmas to change the current course of this fourth wave because it is in our hands. It's in the public's hands. There is so much that the, 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 the um, healthcare professionals can do, but this is very much now in the public public's hands to try... Free to antigen test out. kits would help, wouldn't it? We, like Northern Ireland and the UK? We, we, reducing our social contacts is the, is the key. Reducing our social contacts and staying at home if you have symptoms of infection, are the two, and getting vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated, they are the cardinal things that are actually going to change the course of this disease. Okay, let's, let's leave the conversation and with the three cardinal rules. Thank you so much, Nula, for taking the call, as always. Appreciate it. It's Dr. Nula O'Connor at Elmwood Medical Practice. Your thoughts on that are welcome. Text 0868104106. Back after 10. Hey, it's Kira. Tune in to Saturday Breakfast on Red FM from 7 a.m. and wake up your weekend with music, chats, and all that's happening in Cork. That's Saturday Breakfast on Red FM with me, Kira Revens. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Support local lads. And uh, right across this week, we have wonderful vouchers to give away, courtesy of ourselves and Michelle the Jewelers. Patrick Street, in business for 60 years now. Family run and uh, certainly a port of call that everybody should check out this side of Christmas. So we have 250 euro vouchers every day, except on Friday. Because on Friday, we have a 1,000 euro voucher, and that's tomorrow. So today, another 250 euro voucher. We will take two callers on air, two listeners. You go head-to-head with the diamond cards from the deck of cards. Whoever has the highest diamond card wins the 250 euro. And we've had a lot of sport and fun with that right across the week. So today, you're listening out again for the same cue to call. Round about a quarter to midday, there, thereabouts. Diamonds are forever They are all I need to please me Alright, so hang in there. 250 euro voucher could well be yours. Lines open at 1-850-104-106. Ah, oh, great news. Massive thank you. Although I think he um, didn't want us to mention, but we just had to because it's such a good deed. Trevor O'Connor and the gang at Absolute Fire Systems are going to check the alarm system on Washington Street at Indigo uh, for Sophia. Um, keep you posted on developments there. I think they don't necessarily have to go into a building or anything like that. So Absolute Fire Systems are on the case. Thank you for that. Guards can't do anything about it. City Hall can't do anything about it. Nobody can find whoever owns the building. God only knows or who, I mean, if there was a lease um, and there were people running it as a restaurant, they're not anymore. So hopefully there'll be good news and silence again, apart from traffic noise on Washington Street, but silence the alarm ASAP. So thank you for that. Appreciate it, Trevor. Um, yesterday, we talked of uh, referees um, getting abuse on the pitch. A um, couple of interesting texts on that. Uh, the refs are no angels themselves, you know. They talk down to players like the players are three years old and they make the rules up as they're going along. I've watched many a game where the ref has been nothing short of a disgrace. I can tell you that respect is a two-way street and the refs forget that. Some refs love making the game all about them 
And these refs, you see, have big egos as well. So that's an interesting uh, perspective on it. Somebody else, John says, Alex Ferguson started all this when he told his Man United players to hound the referees. Hound the referees. How would that work? I suppose if you hound the referee... Over the course of the match, you might break the referee down and that ref might be inclined to give more, um, you know, give you more leeway maybe, allow more things go. Um, let the FAI bring in a rule like they have in rugby. One person address the referee, always the captain, no one else. Respect for everyone, says James. Interesting perspectives. But a quick chat with Finbar, if you don't mind. Finbar, good morning. Good morning to you, Neil. Just, I know you were a linesman uh, and a ref for 40 years, but what about that? Uh, refs are no angels. They have uh, big egos. Alex Ferguson well, started it when he told his players hound the referees. Pick up on those points, if you will. Neil, the first thing a referee wants to do is start in the game, bring the two lads up to captain, shake hands, say, good luck, lads. Toss a coin. You're playing there when you're playing there, right? You don't have to have a choice of that. From there on, what the referee wants is a good game, 22 players starting, 22 players finishing. With a good game and play away. He doesn't want to be called names. He doesn't want abuse from the sideline. And I have to say that the young lads, if you ask them, and I've asked them because I know, I know a lot of lads down through the years mm-hmm. that were around the north side, I'm from family myself, and the parents will be there. And I have found the parents to be ridiculous. It's not all, not all, not all. It was just that. Some of them were absolutely, You're because they see the next Roy Keane out there, and they see the next Dennis Irwin. And they will be cutting themselves. The young fellow would be, or the girl, whoever, I did both players. And, and they'd actually believe their young fellow, or, or the, well, the young fellow would be the next right king. And they would be cutting themselves, because the young fellow would be a good player. Yeah. But he wouldn't be at the standard that they, they, they can see. And what kind of things would they be shouting, and who are they shouting at? What do you call I often was called a blind bee. I uh, put on another jersey, you dirt, all that. I was called some desperate names. But I would, I would always stop the game. All I would go over to one man, the manager of the team. And they said, if you don't get that person out of the ground down there, I am leaving the pitch. Right. Uh, what would I, happen? No, I give him one morning first. I said, you know, talk to that person. I am not what they, they just called me. Yeah. So... And I by and large, would the manager go and talk to the parent then? I wouldn't go near the parents. No, and I'm saying, would the manager go, the coach talk to the it parent? It worked a lot of times. It did walk like, because it did. I mean, in fairness, I don't know if had feelings too, like, you know. So it, okay, so it, do, the coach, it, do the coaches shout at the refs? Do what they do. I got to understand that they'd be an outside and you give an outside. And they'd, how could they be off and all that stuff? You know, I, I get over that. Okay, remember, the referee is handling one game. He's handling, handling all those players in one, one movement. So in, in both sides tend to want to win the game, fair or unfair. Okay. Like, and you, not all the not all the out, most of refereeing is very enjoyable. I would recommend ex-players. But has it become very competitive now at very young age that it's all about yeah. the winning, it's all about the cup, it's all about the winning your league or your age group? I, I um, you know some of the lads I met after match, they said, uh, you, you, no, you asked him, you asked him. The first thing they tell you, I didn't want me mother and father there, you know. Yeah. They would like. And I was, I knew a lot of the fellas, they said, and they were going out to pitch and I was saying, oh, mammy, daddy, give out to you there. And they were stiff and they were mortified. So, uh, and then the pair, I met him in the street, I met him in the pub, met him in his supermarket, whatever. And he said, my Johnny was playing today, I thought he was outstanding. What do you think? What am I supposed to say? <laughs> no, nah, he's terrible. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> 
<laughs> Tell them what they want to hear, I suppose. Well, you should hear a fine game, all right. Just fair enough, no keeping an eye on him, Alex. But you know the competitive aspect that I talk, and this is slightly off topic, it must be very upsetting for parents and for young fellas who don't get a game because it's so competitive, but they go I to have, training week in, week out, right? I have seen managers getting abuse of parents because their Johnny wasn't playing or their Mary wasn't playing. But if the, as I can repeat myself, if the parents were honest, Johnny might not be good enough or, or Mary. Do you understand? I know, I know. And, and, and the manager wants to put his best. He wants to win the game. That's so you don't believe that every kid should get a run out? It's too competitive. It's a, you know, you're not going to win a match that way. Oh, can I mention one club? Yeah. Uh, uh, but Corinthians yeah. have the best setup I ever saw outside them. Anybody that ever asked me, I, I think I'm here going into soccer there, what would you I'd always say Corinthians. Why? They have the best setup. They will give every young friend that ever came out there a game of football because they have so many teams in it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. yeah brilliant. Absolutely. They'll find a level to suit the young fellas' skills. I go there from under eight up to up to senior league. Okay. I, I used to love going out there because you see every young fella going out. There could be four or five games at one time. Okay. Okay. See, but, so you don't believe that the ref sometimes is responsible for rubbing people up the wrong way and wanting to be the star of the game? No. Yeah, I, I, I've heard referees assessed at meeting, and he said, uh, I said, yesterday I was at a meeting, uh, I, sorry, I was at a match last weekend, and the only, the only thing the, the, the referee wanted was a gun. Uh, he didn't have was a gun. Because the, the words he was speaking, one, one referee said to a player, don't take me on, you lose. All that stupid, ridiculous talk. You, you speak to a player, you show to the player, the player respect. Yeah. That's yeah, the first thing. Yeah, show yeah. him respect and you will get it back. If you're going to walk up the player aggressive, she's going to nasty defend himself that way. Some reps have had to be escorted back to their car, you know, after all. I, uh, well, I was, I, I think the worst thing of all the things ever, I was threatened a couple of times, but here they got over it. My wife told me, it was mad years ago. She came to me, she came to many reps of me, but it was bad to, but uh, I started going off the pitch. And she said to me, you are mad because we had that game, but I love every second of Batters? It. You mean something was thrown at you or you were hit? Yeah, well, uh, like a lump of salt just passed me here, you know. So uh, <laughs> I made a cardinal mistake. I gave a penalty against the home team in the last minute. So <laughs> you can't do that. But when you say, okay, because that's an interesting one, because somebody said that, and they were referencing Alex Ferguson. Hound yeah. the ref. Give the ref endless grief because you'll get decisions going your way. I, I, I won't mention the former international referee, World Cup referee. He, he, he came to Cockwind and he gave a lecture and we went to it. And he said it was a standing joke. A certain referee was in, in Old Trafford about nine times a year. Yeah. And somehow he found a penalty for the game for Man United. <laughs> He said he, we used to slag him off, but he said he just left the pass over him like water. <laughs> that, I, I won't mention him because he can't. I don't want you to mention his name. <laughs> and fairly speaking, but it's just um, a, a lot of referees who are famous referees um, who came to Cork over the years, and I just got to every one of them because they were very interesting people. They, like, they, they had many stories. But um, it, it, it's, I don't understand why people. I was doing another match one day and the fella came in he was after referee and I was going to do a junior game he was finishing it uh, um, uh, a by game and he came in and I was surprised to see who it was because he was a fairly nasty bloke himself when he was playing right when he said nasty you know it was verbal I don't know I, I called him but he said Johnny yeah Johnny I was refereeing 
from Barry saying, this is my third game in, 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 in school boys and my last. <laughs> How the hell did you put up with it? How did you put up with me, more yeah. like? I met him after and he was the same way. <laughs> I was saying, you've learned nothing for the three games you did. I know, I think, you know, a lot of them come over and apologise, look for your hands, shake hands and say, I'm sorry, I lose the old head. Neil, I, I, I believe that a lot of them used to take their family problems onto the field in aggressive manner. But of all of the different sections, parents, players, or coaches, where's the biggest problem? Uh, in school, by it would be parents. Parents would be yeah. leaving. Okay. I, do, I was doing. I was laning. I give an example. I was laning. I think there was a fourteen final in Turner's Cross one day, and the parents were there. Like uh, they do turn up for finals, and there were some of them and they were shouting at Johnny and making all and fair play, the manager, when you have time, he took, got them all in the restroom, stood on the wall of Turner's Cross, up onto the stand, and he was calling them all by the name. Leave the youngfuls alone, he said. You're out here for one game. I'm with them all here. They play the way you want them to play. I know. Fair play to him. For, but so it's, you'd have parents abusing their son because he's not playing good enough or he made a mistake, is it? Ah, uh, Johnny, for God's sake. Johnny opened your way. Johnny kicked the ball. Johnny did this, all that, you know. This but surely the kid would prefer not to have his parents there at all. They'd just stay away. I have said to him, I have said to him, I mean, daddy, give out to you. And they say, I wish to God they weren't there. You know, but at 15, they wouldn't turn up. From about 15 grade up, parents wouldn't turn up. The youngsters were going away in the run anyway after a match. Whatever they were going, they were going swimming, but they weren't going home with mammy and daddy. It's only getting worse, though, isn't it? Not better. There's a, stri- there's a strike, and there's a striker referees in Dublin this weekend. That's right. Yeah. Then Dublin are always very strong that way. Like they only take a certain amount, and this is not their first time doing that. Is not they're, they're very strong. They're, 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 yeah, they're very strong. They stick together. But should more do it? I mean, you all wants to have the the referees clapped on and clapped off the pitch. That's right. Look, it's, it's in every... I was down the park last Sunday and the difference between passion and, and the violence and the silence is completely different. Gee, Matt, it was a total passion in the second game, the Glynn and, and Sayers. It was a superb game. Okay, and Paddy Hargan, of course. But in fairness, they were passion, roaring, screaming, steering money, each other, used up, you know, the sideline. But no violence, no nothing. Nothing said out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. The referee was brilliant, brilliant anyway in the game and on the, on the day. So it just gives you an idea of the difference. In soccer, they tend to say very personal things to uh, officials. I have to say that. You know, like, but, uh, but you look, there was a match there. You get the odd match. There was a match there about three or four matches, a whole match. And the paper, well, the score, no, listen, was seven goals, 17 points to seven points. Oh, God. And the, the manager of the losing team butted the referee. Headbutted him? Headbutted him, yeah. There's a case he's going to come up in, in court sometime. Oh, my God. I'll watch so out for that court what report. Was he, what was up in his mind? You know, that, that they, were, they were mangled like seven, 17. It wasn't as if there was a point in it or a penalty in it. There was a huge was, difference in score. There was more. There was more. This is what I'm saying about people bring things to the matches in their mind after maybe having gotcha, an argument at gotcha, home or gotcha. something like that and they come in in fury. Yeah, only on one occasion in my life where I turned up in the venue and Liza Gogol Michael walked in this for look to me straight in the face and he said, JC, F in hell, look who we have today. You? Yeah, and I called him. I didn't call him, I called his manager and I showed, see, well, I said, I see yellow cab. I'm giving him that yellow cab. It's the only time I ever did in my life in 40 years nearly. 
I give you the card to a player before the match. And he said to me, you can't do that. Well, certainly, I certainly can. He said, the second I arrive at this venue, I'm in charge of this game until I leave the venue. Yeah. And that was the end of the game. But, um, no, you, you'll, you'll meet lovely people. Most of my games were lovely games. And I got, we started, we changed, we had subs, you know. But um, generally, this refereeing is a love. It's a great game. I loved it from the first second I blew whistle in the family street league in the early 70s. But I, I, I love it. I think I don't understand why there's a shortage. Fellas, there's a shortage because they don't want to put up with the grief anymore. That's the reason you, why. You'll get over it. Look, for God's sake. I'd not tell my come home, but I'd be, I'd be mourning about new ways to live. I told you before, you're mad anyway. But anyway, it's, it's, I get over it. I, in order to, I be over it. All right. Uh, well, happy memories for you of 40 days, Reffin. Absolutely many, many, many. Ask any referee that's been refereeing for some years, and they will tell you the same thing. Many um, brilliant, great memories. Way outweighs, the, way outweighs the negative. All right, Finbar, thanks for taking the call. Appreciate your sharing. Cool. Cheers. Go Take ahead, care. But just a fast one, actually. Trevor, good morning. Trevor's got uh, absolute fire systems. Trevor, good morning. Morning. Um, are you on Washington Street? No, I'm glad I'm not. Oh, you've it turned off? It's only a couple of seconds, yeah. Wow, yeah. you don't need access or anything to the Indigo Cafe or nothing like that? No, I could have broken if you wanted, but no. No, <laughs> no we'll pass on no. that one. Then the guards would arrive, I'd say. What was wrong? Yeah, what was going on? It's, that's been driving people crazy for three days and nights. Is it? Jeez. Yeah, no, the, the fire alarm side has gone off for whatever reason, but... The outside bell, they're supposed to cut off after 15 minutes, you know. Like yeah. The newer ones the last couple of years, so for noise pollution and whatnot, so it was obviously an older one because it would drive people bonkers otherwise, you know. Oh, fair play to you. They'll be absolutely delighted. And you did it in a couple of minutes. Well done. I was going out that way anyway. It's grand. A couple of seconds, done. There's the no chance. Across the way, we're giving the old thumbs up and all. Oh. I'd say their head was fried. The lads working across the way and the old square deal, you know. <laughs> That's what there's a construction site there. Yeah, yeah I'd say that was really overpowering oh it's everyone's heads was know. wrecked in the area so there's no chance it'll come back on again no uh, well it's gone off inside and the building's still in the restaurant but the outside one is disconnected does so. that happen often with the building that's yeah unused yeah, or just empty yeah it does like because the fire alarm stays on and you know if it's cold or damp or anything it drives a bonkers and it just sets it off you know nobody knows who owns the building apparently not at this point in time anyway anyway listen fair play to you thank you so much for coming to our aid and to the good people right. of Washington Street, they'll be delighted. There's a couple of pizzas in it for you tomorrow from ourselves and Oak Fire Pizza, Trevor, for you and the gang, all right? Oh, jeez, that's the last thing I really know is free food. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. We'll all right, take, take it, it when it's going, pal. Yeah. All right, Trevor, yeah, yeah, yeah. cheers, take care. Thanks, lovely, man. lovely bye, stuff. Bye, bye. Okay, maybe we could just box off a couple of pizza for Absolute Fire Systems for tomorrow, Friday. Oh, talking about free food. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Richard. Thank you to all of the gang at Murphy's uh, Chipper in Blackpool. They delivered lunch yesterday and it was absolutely glorious. They had a beautiful bit of fish and chips. Their potato and cheesecakes are divine. They have the battered sausages uh, and the batter burger and the mushy peas and the most gorgeous chips. Chipper chips are the best. Why anybody would go for a frozen chip, I do not know. But it brought back happy memories uh, from down through the years, way back to my short pants days when Murphy's were doing uh, chips in newspapers all wrapped up. So it was great yesterday. Thank you to the gang. It was a lovely, lovely treat. Appreciate it. Back after the break. The Neil Prenderville Show on Twitter at Neil Red FM. Ake Valinga, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Thank you so much for, for taking the call. I have to say, uh, I was so, so moved reading your beautiful, tender, 
uh, emotional recollection uh, of your mother's journey to the end of life as we know it. It was so touching. Um, in fact, I read it. I read it a few times. I was so moved by it. Um, do, you, do you do you mind if you, if we just chat about um, about your mum's passing? Uh, if it's not too much difficulty for you, I don't mean to overly upset you about it. No, not at all. No, not at all. Thank you very much for uh, for your praise. Thank you. Because I, I know that when both your mum and your dad in the Netherlands were healthy and well in their sixties, they made it known by signing a euthanasia declaration with their GP that if life got too tough or the the end was proving too painful, that they would have another option. Am I right? Yes. So my parents um, made that clear when they were in their 60s, happy and healthy, and they uh, signed this declaration to to express that they might or want to pick that up in the future that's not an intention that is just a declaration and there is no um it, it it's just uh how you feel at that moment mm-hmm. but that, there is no responsibility in that at that stage because mm-hmm. we know that in in the netherlands uh euthanasia is is has been legalized since 2002 uh the same in belgium uh, at the moment here in ireland we're going through the dying with dignity assisted bill through the doll the the same thing is happening in the uk um and then four years later mum was was diagnosed with bowel cancer is that right Yes, she was. She was diagnosed, and it took a while before they understood what uh, what they were diagnosing because there were a lot of things wrong with her, and suddenly it was one thing after another. Um, but eventually, they uh, they they uh, confirmed the diagnosis of cancer. Yeah, because you describe um, the pain as being uncontrollable and intolerable. Um, was that was that before she started on morphine patches? No, no, that 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 came over time. Yeah. So when when she was diagnosed, obviously in the beginning, especially after her, um, her surgery, she was in a lot of pain. But that was kept under control then, and um, she could go back to a relatively normal life. And then the pain started increasing, and she started going on morphine patches. And it was only in the last two months that she went on a morphine pump. On the pump itself. Now, I know yes. that m- many of your family, I think both sisters and perhaps your brother as well and your dad, you all they all live nearby. So she would have had 24-hour care at home. Um, and, and she was happy. She liked that, didn't she? She liked that. Oh, she had the best care. Absolutely the best care. Both my sisters are nurses um, and they were very, very uh, involved in her care. And my mom, in a way, and this might turn to it, but she loved the attention of it. And she really had... Yeah, not a good time with it, but she enjoyed the attention. She enjoyed the fact that she was in the in the center of everything. And my sisters, between the two of them, they did amazing work trying to keep her on the right medication, getting uh, help in if they needed it. And my father was a hero. I saw a side of my father that I've never seen before. Yes, of course, you were here in Ireland at the time and would get back from time to time and then clearly were updated with phone calls. But onward, she went with that journey uh, on the morphine pump. Did you did you know that sooner or later, 
having known about the declaration that she had signed, that you would get a phone call saying that the time had arrived? Yes, yes. We were always kept in the loop, all of us. And did that moment come when she made that decision was when she eventually hit the maxine, maximum morphine pump dose, you know, and the pain kept on increasing, was it? Yes. So when, when she, I, I think it was in the last couple of weeks, yeah. it was suddenly clear that we, that whatever they were doing, they could not control the pain any further. She was at a, at a maximum dose of a morphine pump. She was getting all kinds of other medication and there was no relief from it anymore. And that's when she made it very clear, like, we are going to start a process now. And, and so a process begins at that point. And there are probably many different facets to that process. Of course, there's close family, you, your sisters, your, your brother, your father. But how did your mother deal with all of her relations and her friends, you know, with regards to saying goodbye? She so she was always very open about the the journey she wanted to take. So uh, it it didn't come as a surprise to anyone around her. She had that moment when she felt, I've said goodbye to everyone. I wanted to say goodbye to now, and from this moment on, I am going through this with my my own family. Mm. So she she uh, she had that moment where she said like. Uh, I had enough of everyone else, not not as in a, a personal way, but I've said my goodbyes. Um, I want to move on, and I'm not going to do that just with my children and my husbands. So from that point onwards, it was just family, um, yes. all of you together in a little cocoon, all in agreement with her decision. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And all of you had specific roles to play in, in the final days and weeks, didn't you? Yeah, it, it kind of felt like that. It wasn't really that we were given a role, but you, you kind of fall into a role nearly. And, well, especially my sisters, both being nurses, they were very, um, very clear about needed to, what needed to be done. And they were very much on top of her medication, keeping her as comfortable as, as they could. Um, my brother was very involved in trying to um, yeah, go for walks with her in uh, at that stage in a wheelchair. He would be the one who would bring in the flowers. He was in charge and of the flowers, yes, yes. He was in charge of the flowers, he definitely was. Yeah, um, yeah. And I would, uh, yeah, as much as I could, I would, would give her a call. And what was the flight from, from Galway home to, 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 to the Netherlands like for you? It's unreal because you go and you know what's going to happen next. Yes, yes. Whereas normally you would get a call of it has happened. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, because my mom was so clear about her wishes and how it had to happen, it, it, yeah, it was upsetting, but there was a peace in it as well. And when you, when you got there and met your mom, you described her as being very calm and content. Um, I don't mean to overly pry into your privacy, but did you did you chat with her and say your goodbyes? Did she tell you that she loved you and, and you her? Things like those kind of conversations? Yeah, that, that was a very strange moment because it was, a, of course, over the years, because I, I, I do live in Ireland, you say your goodbye so many times and every time it's, it's a, a bit less upsetting, but... 
in in the past year then it was a little bit more upsetting every time because you knew it was coming so much closer every time so when when i arrived from from the plane and and saw it there that that was a really difficult moment because that was the moment like okay now this is this is the final steps. This is the, the final time I will say my goodbyes, and yeah, that was a very emotional time. But she she was like that. Now she was very strong. She was very together. She knew what she wanted, and she had with all her children. She had a very different uh, ways, um, and we all said our goodbyes in our own ways. I, I mean, I, I, just listening to you, I, I, I'm in awe at her bravery, you know, just yes. where she got the strength, the will, and just the bravery to, uh, forgive me for saying it like this, but to go through with it. Yes, yes. And that is one thing I've thought a lot, because I am I am so much for this choice, and I think everyone should have that choice, and it is such a difficult journey, and it's so brave to go through with it. And in every step I've taught, I don't know whether I would have that bravery. I don't know whether, especially at that last moment, I would say, I go ahead for this. But at the same time, I also am not the one who has gone through so much pain for so long. And I suppose at a certain moment, you feel your body has given everything it has. And so that Tuesday came um, and all of you had roles to play. Uh, I believe, you know, your younger sister dressed your mom. You washed her. Another person made food. Your lovely brother got fresh flowers. And your father then spent Wednesday night with your mom or Tuesday night with your mom. And then Wednesday morning. Um, talk me through that. Yeah. So the last night they wanted to be on their own together. Um uh, and um, they only wanted us there, um, I think it was 10 o'clock, that we could arrive. And we sat down together. And my mom, of course, with the medication, she was at a level of medication that she couldn't freak out. But she was very lucid. She was very aware of everything going on. And for her, she was very peaceful. She knew the end of her pain was nearly there. I think that is the one thing that helped her too. And I, I, I know, I don't know how that pain is. So I can't imagine those last moments for her. But you did all sit and have coffee and cake, I believe. Yes, yes. yes. And because she had bowel cancer, she was, till the very last moment, she enjoyed her food so much. So that was just such a strange moment, her sitting there and there was cake and none of us could, we could hardly touch our coffee, never mind the cake. And she just enjoyed it. She had her piece of cake and ate it and with such joy. Dear it me. was amazing. Isn't it and amazing? you sit there together and and be, yeah, we were all very much aware of it. We were aware of what was going to happen. It felt like it took very long for the next hours to pass. And at the same time, it went too fast. But you had all agreed at the behest of your dad not to cry in front of mom. Is that right? Yes. My dad was very strict. Mm. <laughs> he always was very strict. He was definitely very clear on that. Yeah, did he called it the drive room. Did, did anybody at any stage say to your mom, 
Are you sure it's still not too late or were we gone beyond yes. that? You did? No, no, that, that was that was um, a constant kind of threat to the conversation. Mom, are you OK? Mom, you're sure about this? And she was, and she kept on repeating it as well. She had a lot of patience in the end. She never had that in, in her life, really. But, yeah, at those moments, people are very, are, are, are very together and aware of the people around them as well. So, yeah. You recall it as being a very beautiful, sunny day. And you recall hearing the doctor arrive on his bicycle. Forgive me if I get emotional, but I find the whole story so emotional. Um and it was actually the, the, the GP who broke down, am I right? Yes, he broke down. And that was the, and you know, in those moments, especially with the tension so high, um, at that moment, it, we, we, we were all nearly laughed because he broke down. It was his first time that he, um, he was going through this process. He got very close to my mother. Um, over that time, over her treatment, and then in the end with the euthanasia. Um, and he also had um, a second GP with him to support him through this process. So he he did amazing. He was a really, really nice, kind man. But of course, for him, it's very emotional as well, because they come from a different side. They, they've learned to save lives, and here they help somebody pass, which is really difficult for them he was fantastic he was um even though he broke down he apologized we were all there we we i think it was there was a good atmosphere even Mm -hmm. though that sounds strange but because we were all there and very supportive we all got through together did your father take his take your mother in his arms yes yes were you all around holding hands uh, we were all around. Yeah, my my sister was holding my 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 dad. My brother was um, holding my mom's hand, and I was at uh, her feet. My other sister was holding her other hand. So we yes, we were all very much in touch. And then, of course, the medication is administered first to put your mom to sleep, and then she fell against your father's arm and went to sleep, and yeah. then. After that, there's the second medication. Am I right in that regard? Yes. Yeah. 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 And that, that went so fast. So fast. Yeah. And yeah. without her, I mean, she, she looked at all of us. She looked around the room. She looked at each one of us. And then he gave the first medication. And she just, yeah, she fell asleep. Yeah. That was a very intense moment, but very, very beautiful. I was looking at a photograph of you and your mother. You were absolutely like identical twins. (laughs) Do you think so? Yeah. Oh, my God. Absolutely. (laughs) Same smile, same features, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see that, of course. I see my mother in that picture, of course. uh, Do you mind me asking, was your mum religious? I mean, would, would the Netherlands be a Catholic country, I'd imagine? Would it be, perhaps? My mom was very Catholic. Yes, yeah, she was brought up like uh, in a very Catholic community. She went um, to boarding school with the nuns. She always had, um, yeah. She, I think, over time her faith lapsed, as in she wouldn't go to church as often anymore. But 
she kept holding on to certain things. Mm. She, we were all baptized. Um, she was a great candle lighter in churches, I'm told. She was a great <laughs> candle lighter, great believer in candles. Absolutely, yes. I just wonder. I just us. wonder with people: is it is it the religious beliefs that sometimes deter people and and maybe even slow the conversation and, and slow the legislation? You know. Do you think? Maybe, yeah, maybe, and I, I, I can understand that in a way. I, I still, um, there, there are always different sides to these stories and different ways of looking at it. And I think at the end of the day, you just have to make up your own minds. Religion is a very personal uh, issue, anyway, or a personal belief. So, yeah, in every way, this, this becomes a very personal journey. And and you are a firm believer in this, aren't you, in, in, with regards to active dying? Because there was also a, a, a passive version of, of, uh, of assisted death, of course, as well. But um, because the, if the pain is intolerable, why should somebody have to prolong it? Is that your belief? My belief is that you should have a choice. Yeah. And and if you if if you have a choice, that is a good thing, and then you can decide whether that is for you uh, as an individual, in, whether that works with your personal beliefs, and then you can get the support to do that. That is for me really important that you have the choice, and if you make that choice, you have the support. Like I said, I don't know whether I can or I could go through this. But I have not been the one that was in such pain. And if I looked at my mother and the amount of pain she went through, yes, I can understand that at a certain moment you feel like I've given enough and this is enough. You would describe it, that journey and, and your mum's passing as being, I think you used the word, a positive memory. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I was talking to my father after that because he saw that, that headline and he said, yes, it's, it is positive, it's painful, it's very sad, it's very upsetting, but a very positive memory, yes. And it's, very, it's, a, it's, it's about compassion as well, isn't it? It's about, you know, yeah. not wanting to prolong somebody's life um, just for the sake of it, where there, you know, is, is zero quality. I mean, in the UK, they're, they're discussing... Um, if one would have less than six months life expectancy left, that they they may pass assisted dying bill on on that basis. Do you follow me? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and that that is what it is about. And I don't know whether you can put a time on that. And I I suppose if you if you make legislation, you have to put a time on this. But that is not an exact science anyway. But I I, I do believe it's about compassion. It's about um, supporting people that do that 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 cannot take any more pain, and there is no prospect of dealing with that pain in any better way and are there many who do choose that path in say in the netherlands is is, is there is there a figure for the amount of people who do did i read five percent somewhere yeah i think and that's both in belgium and in the netherlands it's less than five percent of people that actually choose to to go ahead yes. with uh, euthanasia yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And nobody. And this is after years. Nobody can stop that. Sure, they can't. If the patient decides a son or a daughter or a husband can't stop that. Sure, they can't. 
No, I think that is very important. None of us could have stopped anything at any stage. We could have disagreed with it. We could have made it very difficult, but we couldn't have stopped it. But you were all there together in the moment with your mother abiding by her wishes. Yeah, this this was the, the last thing what we could do for her. Yeah. Aka, thank you so much for having a conversation with me about it, um, difficult and all as that may have been. Thank you so much for taking the time. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Neil. Your text and welcome text 0868104106. Pick up the phone on 1850104106. We'll pick it up after the break. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 1850 1106. Red FM. Aka Valenga and the end of life choice of her mother, of which they were all in agreement. You can text 0868104106. We do have uh, a bill that's been discussed in the Irish Doll and will be in the Shannon as well, which is the assisted dying bill in the UK. They have an equivalent one called the Dying with uh, Dignity Bill. Uh, And of course, when you talk of euthanasia, there is both active and passive. Now, passive is accepted and acceptable in many, many countries around the world. That would be the withholding of uh, life support or or ventilation or withdrawing of feeding tubes and and, and things like that. But active is very different. And it was active, the active euthanasia or end of life that I was talking about with regards to um, Valenga's mum and uh, other countries that um, where it is legal is obviously the Netherlands, following that conversation with ACA, Belgium, Canada, Colombia, Luxembourg, Spain, uh, many parts of Australia, uh, different territories in Australia and other countries that are talking about it, um, actively talking about it in their parliaments and, and we're amongst them. Uh, Violet says, I totally understand this family's predicament and I firmly stand with them. It's a personal choice. And if this is what their mum wanted, I applaud them for making her passing easier on her. God love them. May she rest in peace. Hand on heart, I think this should be legal. If a loved one is in pain and suffering 24-7, day in, day out, and gave their consent in any way they could, whether it be with a nod or an X on a piece of paper, just anything that says they are ready to go, I would give them their wishes. No one would want to see them in pain, says Sabina. Imelda says, I, wouldn't, I would have previously said yes, 100%. But where is the line drawn? Who makes the decision on the criteria where one can choose to end their life? If someone is depressed, perhaps, would they have an option without being offered help to get them through their depression, says Imelda? It's an individual choice. What my mother went through towards the end was pure cruelty. I would never allow an animal to suffer. Uh, At least when things get towards the end for them, the vet can put them to sleep to end their suffering, says Susan. And Pat says, my father died in 2011. He spent eight weeks in hospital being given drugs. My sister and I went in one morning to ask to visit him and asked him how he was. He replied, I'm tired, I want off all meds, and I want to go. Uh, palliative care came in, he had heart problems, and they were fantastic with him, checking he wanted off everything and then gave him options. He passed three days later after a turn And while he was going, the nurse came in and said, I will give him something to move on as he was in a coma. I would rather euthanasia than what he went through in the last few weeks, says Pat. And just one more for now, whether you agree or disagree with euthanasia, put uh, put it in your end of life plan. It should be a person's own choice. Um, Maria says it should be available in Belgium. They offer both palliative care and assisted dying in the same hospitals. People have a choice to choose what they want. I would want that choice if I had a life-limiting disease. 
I wouldn't let my pet suffer and feel people should have that choice too. Okay, so there's more texts and indeed calls after 11. Get involved in the conversation. If you'd like to share your own story um, and you'd like to get it down and send it to me, email neil at redfm.ie. I'm Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national and international sport every weekend on The Big Red Bench. That's The Big Red Bench every Saturday and Sunday from 6 on Cork's Red FM. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now. 1850-104-106. Red FM. How the heck are you? You'd be an awful lot better off with a 250-euro voucher for Michelle, the jewellers, Patrick Street, Cork. They're there for you, lads. And tomorrow we have a 1,000-euro voucher to spend at Michelle, the jewellers. Uh, a must-stop shop this side of Christmas. So, uh, sometime between now and midday, I will play this cue to call. And I will take callers 10 and 11. When you hear it, you'll both come on air. I'm only playing with a half deck. I always have. Actually, I'm only playing with the quarter deck. Just the diamonds. Whoever gets the highest diamond card from the deck wins the daily prize of a 250 euro voucher. It couldn't be simpler than that. So when you hear this again, not now, but later. Diamonds are forever. They are all I need to please me. Incredible voice. Incredible voice. Shirley Bassey with Diamonds Are Forever. The Bond movie. So when you hear that again, pick up the dog and bone. Call us 10 and 11 on 1850 104 106. My conversation with uh, Ake Valenga has many texts coming in and calls too. Uh, and I'll go to calls in a moment. I think euthanasia should be legalized. Any person who knows they have a terminal illness should have the choice to pass away with dignity at a time of their own choosing. If it were regulated in a way that a doctor can confirm a terminal diagnosis, and the person is in a well enough state mentally to make the decision to end their life when they want to do so, I don't see why it shouldn't be allowed. If I knew I were sick and never to be cured, I wouldn't want my family to see me suffer or have to look after me and remember me that way. I'd want to live as long as I could and enjoy the time, and when I started to deteriorate, I would want to pass peacefully. Thank you for that text. Rose says, I believe once the patient has discussed it and is of sound mind to make this decision for themselves. It must be so liberating and a plan of action can come into play then that they are fully involved with. Rui says it should be 100% available in every country. Every person should have the right to choose and there are many more. Shall I do one or two more? Deborah says, I would have said no previous to seeing my lovely husband die in pain. To watch the one you love live daily agony and not a thing you can do about it is heartbreaking beyond measure. Walk in my shoes, I suppose, is what Deborah is saying in fairness to her. Susan says, absolutely believe physician-assisted dying should be passed in law. We wouldn't let an animal suffer, so we should have the choice if faced with a terminal illness. The laws are very strict in places where it's legal, and it works extremely well for the most part. I'm glad this is being discussed, and we need to be discussing it more. It's about choice. Thank you, Susan. Um, uh, Ake was talking about two different GPs and also a counsellor and a psychologist all being involved in uh, putting the plan together and actually signing off on it so that it was legal to do so in each individual case. So there are a lot of checks and balances in in the Netherlands, my conversation with Akka Valenga. I think it's very easy to think of this as black and white, but it's far from it. Look to other countries for your answer. Families fighting in court for the right to be the next of kin 
some crying saying the husband or child is being murdered against their will. Very slippery slope, this one, says Katarina. So thank you for those texts. There are more. I'll come back to them throughout the course of the morning. Text 0868104106. Frank is standing by. So is Liam. But I want to chat with Joe. Joe, good morning. Good morning, Niall. Did you hear my conversation with Eka regarding her mother? Well, I was glad I did, Niall, because I tell you, I don't know how much I miss, but I don't think I miss very much. I just switched on your, your Good station. Man. Okay. And well, I, well, I'm glad I'm glad you called because you wanted to pick up on that conversation regarding your lovely wife, Eileen, was it? That's right, yeah. She she died uh, four years ago tomorrow, no, Niall, the 12th of November. And uh, her primary cancer was breast cancer in 2004. And then it, it came back then again in 2012 in the ovaries, you know. And looking back on it now, those five years in 2012, 2017, I like I was saying to your researcher there, it was like the road to Calvary, really, because eventually, you know, she was suffering, then she would be okay for a while. Then her hip was replaced, the cancer went from the pelvis to the hip, and she already had it in the ovaries. The ovaries were removed in 2012. Then eventually it went around the liver and it went near the bowel and she used to have a lot of bowel obstructions and it, that was extremely painful for her, you know, down on her knees sometimes on the floor and I have to get a doctor or an ambulance and to be morphine straight away, like, you know. Oh, and, yeah, it, it, it was oh, just man. like the road to Calvary, as I say, it was just, that's, that's five years in particular, 12 to 17, it was just excruciating because, she, as I say, she'd get good periods, we'd, we'd be able to go for a little break and that, I remember once we were actually down the Buddha Centre in Castletown Bear in the Ahleys. And um, after about two days, she was in agony and we had to get an ambulance from there up to the COH. And um, oh dear. the vomiting and, and, and the, the, just the desperate pain with bowel obstetrics, you, you could imagine. It's, it's exclusive. And, you know, over that period of four years and all that she went through and you alongside her, did you both have conversations about what she was going through and, you know, uh, Well, I can feeling? tell you now, it's a kind of a case 22 because she was a fighter to see and even in the worst of times, she often said to me, I, I'm not going to die and I could see she was struggling and I said, well, to put that in a nutshell, it was like after she died, I remember one of the palliative care nurses said to me because I was looking after her at home this year I, I took her from the COH six weeks before she died and she came home with the morphine pump as well on mm. and I was doing all that with her and I was giving her several tablets which are morphine sulfate in tablet form and uh, the nebulizer and all the rest of it you know and sick bags and what have you and I remember the palliative care nurse said to me about two or three weeks after she died she said all the nurses agreed that she didn't want to leave you so it was a case 22, and yet she had an advanced healthcare directive done in August of that of that year. What's that? Well, an advanced healthcare directive, uh, the doctor came to the house, that was her wish, that you would not be resuscitated if, if, if you needed to be on, on no invasive treatment or surgery or anything. She, like she was sitting on, on a commode one morning, night in August that year, and a palliative care nurse was down with her in the house, and she had a desperate bowel obstruction again and she said look I don't want I don't want any pain she said I don't want to suffer anymore and I don't want any resuscitation or any invasive sort of treatment or therapy so mm. yet at the same time you see I, I, I find it difficult because of the fact that like the last few moments when she was alive you know she had the, the, the oxygen mask on her at that stage mm. the doctor had been in the house and he left the night nurse arrived at 11pm at night 
And I'd say after what was after 11, and she died at 20 past 12, which was in the Sunday morning, the 12th. And the last few moments were really she, she was just gasping, and I put my hand on her face and I said, I still love you, Eileen. And she took three gasps herself and she said, I love you, and she died. You know, and they were the last words you spoke. Exactly, the last words, yes. They're lovely that. words, though, aren't they? I suppose, like like some person said to me about two years later, it was kind of bittersweet, if you know what I mean. It was just... It was lovely. And just, but I think you're an automatic pilot as well. Yeah. I was on my own with her to see... Yes, because you, you, di- you didn't have kids, so you were all alone all your all life, alone. if you like. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I suppose, like, once she died, you see, the, the usual, the night nurse said, you know, well, are you up to this? And I said, I am, of course. I said, I went through the journey with her and we had to just change her clothes and give her a little wash and, and lay her out on the bed. And that's something I could not do before because my parents died within four weeks of each other when I was when I was young, when I was 22. And I found it even difficult to put my hand on my mother's forehead in, in the coffin. Well, where's my wife? I, I could just lift her up. You know, mm. It didn't bother me in the least. I know. It was just like part of myself was gone. Like. I know, I know. And, Euthanasia itself. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that, considering what your wife went through, would you regard as those five years as being cruel five years? Um, yeah, looking back on it, it's, 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 it's torturous, you know. I, I suppose my people might find this strange, and my philosophy in life is every single one of us, and I think it's, it's, it's never debated anyway. Death is, like we all know, with COVID now at the moment. I mean, we'll all die whether we get COVID, cancer, or something else. Like, and, and why suffer, you know? Why suffer like the road to Calvary? I mean, you're going to, you're going to get there in the end and die. And I think there's, there's, there's too much suffering. You see. I don't know. I think yeah. it's crazy, really. Yeah. But at the same time, as I say, it's, it's, this might sound contradictory, at the, as I say, at the last moment. Of course, I want her to stay with me, but at the same time, your heart is being tugged to see you, and, and I felt, God, I, I don't want to leave me, but at the same time, I don't want her to suffer. No, but it ultimately, it would be her choice, Eileen's choice, to, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Oh, she, yeah. She, she was, you do describe her as a fighter and a fighter, and up until the last few weeks, she was fighting until, yeah. you know, you mentioned that episode there where she said, I, I don't want to take the pain anymore, I don't want intervention. Yep. You know? Well, I can tell you now, three hours before she died, I remember it was... Oh, God, it was about oh, nine or half past nine at night and the doctor was just leaving. He had the oxygen tank in the house. And I remember she was trying to knit because she, she was very, a very good knitter and a good painter, artist as well. But she was knitting and I could see the needles dropping, you know, because she was still trying to keep going, this thing. And she even gave me a brown envelope with money in it for the disabled artists. She used to get stuff from them every Christmas. And she said, what do you want for Christmas? And three hours later, she was dead. Crikey. She still wanted to fight. And her birthday was 11 days later, this day, on the 23rd of November. So, in hindsight, would you have changed anything? Or would she have changed anything? If, say, for instance, we had a dying with dignity bill passed here, or an assisted dying bill, if it were available? Um, would I would have... think she would have went for that, yeah. You think so? I think so? I would think so, because, as I say, I always remember that, that day in August when she was sitting on the commode yeah. and she said, I've had enough. Because the pain's excruciating with the bowel obstructions in particular. I can't speak for cancer because I, I, I hadn't got cancer. I know. But the pain obviously is, is extreme. And it was in our bones as well, this thing. There will, there will come a time when somebody should have a choice to say, okay, um, you know, now is the time. That was the case with Akka's mother. You know, it was there. She had signed yeah. off on it. She had done all of the work on it. She had gone through all of the different legal aspects of it. 
And then it was a case of waiting for the, the time. It could be a day, it could be an hour, it could be a minute when she said, OK, um, you know, we're, we're going to do it tomorrow. I, 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 if it's my, myself in my own case, I, I, I always believe that I, I should be entitled to it. I mean, nobody, I mean, I didn't ask to come into the world. That might sound a bit, you know, I'm not being nasty when I say that, but I, I didn't ask to come into the world. I don't think people should force me to stay in it and suffer to the end. Some people worry, though, that, it would, that, that legislation like that could well be abused. I find it hard to see how, if ACA's story is 100% accurate, as I believe, there doesn't exactly. seem to be a possibility to abuse the system, not in the Netherlands anyway, but that somebody could be cajoled or forced or bullied into it by a child or a son or a daughter, you know? Yeah, I know. I know people do do bring that uh, that side of it up. I, I, I know I can understand that as well. But uh, but if it's done properly, like she said, you know, yeah. you, you doctors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, right. or whatever, yeah. Yeah. and the person isn't like my my wife was in full sound mind at that stage, and when she done the advanced healthcare directive, you know, and if it was her wish to, as I say, if euthanasia or end of life was available, I I, I would. I would say 99% I would say she would have Eileen would have went for it yes and just finally before I let you go I wonder how much pardon me she had enough to say enough I wonder how much of it is kind of is is kind of cloaked in religion you know you'll never get to heaven or have those days gone now that you must have a natural death otherwise you'll go to hell or you'll I think there's still an element of that now because I remember somebody said to me, you know, when when I said I I would go for it, they said to me, well, you can't be playing God. And to me, that's their version of God. That's that's what they think God is. But to me, I don't know what it is anyway. Like, but who am I to say? But I think it's about compassion and love. That's what struck me with with Akka as well. It's about compassion. And to me, God is compassion. Whatever whatever that God is, is our thing or whatever. That's beautiful. She describes her mother looking around the room from her husband to her three daughters, one by one by one, and to her son, and um, just saying goodbye with her eyes. Well, I can tell you, I, I, sorry, Noel, but I can tell you this, it was a, this, this wasn't a palliative care nurse, no, this was actually another nurse that was telling me sometime afterwards when she said that when her father was dying, they say they were around the bed, they didn't want him to die, but she said to me, now I'm thinking, what about his wish? Yeah, I know. You're suffering in the bed, and the other person's looking on, and they don't want it. But I mean, it, yeah. it's it's crazy. I I I've always believed it myself, and yeah. I, I know it's easy just to be flipping the boat and say it like. But as I said, that was my catch twenty two. I suppose I, I wanted her to be with me, but at the same time, I didn't want her to suffer. Okay, okay. Well, and you think you think of her every day, but especially tomorrow on the fourth anniversary of her passing. Well, like I said, the email earlier, and I, and I won't keep along with that. If I was diagnosed myself in the morning, this might sound extreme to some people. It would be the same thing if you told me I had a head cold and I had a week to live. It just doesn't bother. Doesn't I bother. No, it was a transition, just going to like going to sleep. And did you always feel that way, or do you feel that way now because no. Eileen is gone? I felt I, I when when I brought her out of the house with on the stretcher with the undertaker the following morning, I felt I was going with her into the house, and it was just like a shell coming back. You saying you have nothing to live for, is it? Um, I suppose somebody said to me, I'm marking time, I can get on. If I met you in the morning, you'd say, God, this fellow's great, he's in good form. But in the back of my mind, is death, just like going to sleep, this doesn't bother me in the least. But you're living your life in spite of that as best you can, I wonder? Yeah, well, I, I, I get, at the moment, I, I'm just getting on with things. Yeah. You know, I have my meals and all the rest of it and yeah. whatever I want to do. Yeah. But at the same time, if you said in the morning, look, God, we have bad news, you know, you've only about six months to live. That's okay, so I'm going to die anyway. Okay, and will you, meet her, will you meet her again, do you think? 
I was always a thinker and a, and a questioner, I suppose, and, and that's something that I, I, I don't know. And yet at the same time, I can feel her, her presence because every day it's in my mind all the time. I, I always say to her, photo every night. I'll see you in the morning and the same in the morning when I get up. I said, I'm up again. Good morning. Good man yourself, Joe. What a lovely way to finish a conversation. Look after yourself and thanks for taking the call. I will indeed. Thanks very much. Mate. All the best, Thank Joe. You. Cheers. Back after the break. Get involved. Pick up the phone. one 850 Text The Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Frank standing by. So is Eilish. This is your show. So it's your stories and your conversations. Fra- Liam is first up. Liam, good morning. Morning, Neil. How are you? Uh, I think we... Did we speak some weeks back about your dad? Yeah, he had, my dad had um, terminal lung cancer that spread to the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, and just just remind me again of the conversation we had. Did, did your dad is he ill now or did he pass away? Oh, my dad passed away in July. He had, he got diagnosed in um, late January, early February. He he did for four four months. But uh, okay, it, it, it was just. We were talking about the the care he got in the hospital that the the visitors weren't uh, allowed in and stuff. That's why. There you it. go. Yes, indeed. And was did you have conversations with him about um, about dying with dignity or the the right to choose his own time and passing because it was it was terminal lung cancer gone to the brain. I'm sure he was in quite an amount of pain. Uh, yeah, before he was like I'm talking out for a couple of years. And he like you know originally he got um, prostate cancer. Uh, 10, 12 years ago and um, there was a story a couple of years ago in England of a man his wife I think she had some sort of illness uh, Are you talking about Tom Curran and his wife Marie Fleming? That That's the one and yeah. if he went to Switzerland to get the, to get her uh, euthanasia that they'd arrest him when he came back That's right. yeah. for assisting her dying Yeah, but it, he, or my dad always spoke of it like you go when you want to go like you know my, he was in a, my dad was in a coma for a week before he actually died and, he, and a lot of people don't like people say like you you die of cancer but a lot of people die of what like you get so much morphine for your pain relief you die of a morphine overdose rather than the cancer mm-hmm. but the morphine is to help the, the pain for the cancer yeah, I, I, I was reading up on that recently, actually, because medics push back on that and they say that, you know, because people believe that in some cases um, the morphine dose is upped at the end to help them passing. Medics will say that is not true. The the morphine is upped to help with the pain, that it doesn't assist the speed of passing. Do you know, I mean, I'm not a medical person, but I know that in my own mother's uh, passing away, you know the pump was upped and upped and upped and upped. Um, yeah, yeah. Because uh, we were told, like my dad, when you have cancer, your sw- your swallow kind of goes. So yeah. my dad was on tablets. Yeah, uh, he was on morphine tablets as well. But they brought out the pump then um, to give him all his tablets and the morphine, and they upped the morphine. And when they upped the morphine, that's when he went into the coma. Then. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and do you believe that um, if he had had a choice to go sooner, um, that he would have taken that choice? I I think so. I think he I think he would have. Yeah, when he was in um, what we call 
some sort of a fit state of mind, Neil, because, you know, his memory did start to go because it, it, it had spread to the brain. Mm. But I think if he was given the choice and he was told, look, Tony, you have terminal cancer, uh, there's no, like we were told there was no treatment for him and that if, what they described it as, if they put a scan of a brain in front of you and you got a paintbrush with paint on it and flicked it at the, at the scan, that's where the tumours were. Yeah. So they were everywhere. Yeah. So there was no help. But um, I think, I, I, I know he probably would have taken that option if it was available because he was proud, like he was proud of things he was able to do and that, that he was like a family man so he'd like to spend time with his family but I think if he had the choice he'd, he'd have gone the way he wanted to go rather than dying like that. Yeah, interesting text from Miroslava. I may well get a chance to talk to her. I don't know or not. But she said, I was classed terminally ill in 2018, but I'm still alive. Um, I can just say, she says, it's a very grey area the topic you're discussing. So that was three years ago when she was classed terminally ill. Uh, yeah. Still alive. I suppose, terminally ill with, with what kind of life expectancy? You know, terminally ill, you live one year. Terminally ill, you live five years. I don't know. Um, it, it, there's rare cases where people do outlive it, but the, what, when I spoke to the doctor, it, it was it's six months or less. Really, is what terminally ill means. Now there are people who outlive it. Neil. There's people who outlive everything, but mm. terminally ill does usually mean terminally ill. Like, mm. and did did Dad die at home? Then, yeah, he did. My my mum. Uh, when I spoke to her the last time, I, I was uh, talking to her about my mum who looked after him for f- four months and her friend Lisa and she she did everything for him and he, even though like sometimes he, he'd be in a mood but he, he'd never say I had a bad word to say he, and he died on the 22nd of July uh, 22nd of July yeah. at half past eight in the morning and he died he was with my mum on his own so that's the way he went with and that's what we gave him Good man. The the man who spoke a minute ago about his wife, the story he said that he his last words to his wife were, "I love, I love you." Um, My mom and dad had a thing where they'd say, or my mom would say, "I love you always," and he'd say, "Or I love you," and then he'd say, "Always and forever." And (laughs) then that was dad took his last breath, and he was trying to say, "Always and forever," but. He did say it. She may not have heard every word and syllable, but he did say it. Yeah, yeah, that's what he meant. He meant to say you it. Better she knows it. Yeah. She was with him, and you know what? She's she's strongest person I know, anyways. And he was the strongest man I know to go through that, anyway. Neil, lovely tribute. Thanks for paying that lovely tribute to your dad and your mum as well. Thanks, Liam. Take care. Thanks, Neil. Thanks very much. Cheers, my man. Um, Eilish, good morning. Morning, Neil. How are you? Extraordinary story about your sister. Bit of a roller coaster, right? Yeah. I was just saying to Brenda there. Um, Emers, yeah. Emers, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, she was a psychiatric nurse for years in Jeff and the regional, you know. And uh, anyway, she, uh, to make a long story short, I don't want to take all your time. She got a headache, right? And she was transferred to a local hospital. I won't mention the hospital, right? Because it wouldn't be fair. And they dismissed her after a couple of days. They just, just pollen or something, you know. Mm. And then. On the a couple of days after she was um, 
been dismissed. Um, Halloween night, I'm a bit nervous now, we're recalling the whole lot. Halloween night, uh, 2002, she was yeah. found in her kitchen floor collapsed. Her own she kitchen floor collapsed? Yes. Yeah. So yes. you went home from yes. the hospital, right? Okay. So anyway, then she was transported back to the original hospital she was in, and then she, then she arrived in CUH, okay? Yeah. And uh, she was, about four days later, Neil, she got a second massive hemorrhage, and that was desperate. So she was put on life support on a Friday night, right? And we were all told, like, there, was a, there is a lot of us in the family, a few of us, but we have a lot of siblings and all the rest of it. And uh, she was put on life support, and we were told that in the morning they would take off her life support, and she would slowly pass on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now she had three little girls and an, an older girl, right? Um, Laura, Sarah, and Meve, eight, nine, and ten, and an older girl in her twenties. Okay? Right. okay. Mother to four so, kids, yeah. Okay. Mother to four kids. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, so I was saying there to Emer that it was an awful bad night, and it was a Friday night, and she was supposed to die on the Saturday morning. So Kate and I were great friends, like you know, and um, great buddies, best sisters, and. I said, I have to go up and say goodbye to her, you know. So her eldest girl was with her. So I was up in Ned in the middle of nowhere on a dreadful bad night. And Ginny rang me and she said, Oh, there's no point coming up because you won't be left in. It's just me. Just me. That's all. That's the let in. Not even the other three girls. Like, So I said, OK, that's no bother. So I said, I'll turn the car now. And I stopped crying, of course. Rang home to the people who were running my daughter at the time, my sister and her husband. And they said, come on, way home, at least. So I did. But anyway, Neil, what came on the radio when I was sat there in Ned in the miserable, cold, dark night, only come running home again, Katie. I played the song every single day. Mary Black's version, is it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Every day I played. it. So anyway, we were all waiting. Like I said to Emma, my, my, another one of my sisters was at home painting a wall with an inch brush waiting for the news. This was 19 and, years ago, incidentally, yeah. 19 years ago, Halloween night. So, and we had lost a brother the previous Christmas, so we were, Jesus Christ, in an awful state. But so this was the night you were expecting the following morning to have the news of her passing? Yes, yes. Then she decides to start breathing away on her own. Okay? So, that was a miracle, actually. She's a pure miracle. Um, it's a happy ending, Neil, definitely, and that's why you know, I'll continue anyway. I don't want to be giving you... No, I don't want to be. No, I understand that. So, I mean, it, yeah. it was, was it, were, did you have strokes? Were there brain hemorrhages? Hemorrhages. Okay. Massive um, okay. aneurysms. So, yeah. what, where, what was she like the next morning then? Of course, out of it completely, Neil. But then they took the decision to send her to Beaumont in Dublin to coil the aneurysm. Okay? Now, it's a very, very precise kind of a procedure. To shrink it, yeah. To, to, it'll, where it'll, they shoot it up your veins and it, 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 it um, blocks it. You know? Yeah, it reduces so it. So it's fine. She was above and Beaumont for a while. And then I, I said to Emer, I wrote five full scrap pages of a letter to Michal Martin at the time to help us out, to get her some help in Dunleary or something. Fair play to him, he did. Now, in fairness. Okay. Um, but had somebody had, had somebody said that she will pass away during the night or she'll be gone by morning at some stage? They said she would demise that when they took off life support, there was no hope for her. And that did not happen? She was... They were telling us she was clinically dead, and it did not happen. But then, after the ball and got coiled, had a bit of um, what you call it rehabilitation in Dunleary, and then early two thousand three, then she was sent back down to our local hospital. Um, 
Kerry General. And they told us that she would be probably die by Easter. Okay? Right. So for three years, Neil, we were in and out and back and forth, the whole lot of us doing our own you know, shifts. And she could see us, she could hear us, but she couldn't speak to us. She, her hands were all twisted. Her feet were all twisted. She had gathered loads of calcium in her hips, so she couldn't move. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, that went on for about three years, Neil. And the point I'm making is if euthanasia was an option at that time, who knows what would have happened, you know? So, um, it probably couldn't have happened if she was found collapsed on the kitchen floor and never spoke a word after because she wouldn't yeah, have been able yeah. to make the decision for herself. But I know, uh, yeah, but if, for instance, she had left an instruction that in the event yeah. of, you know, the situation she found herself mm-hmm. in, that she would get assisted dying, she'd be gone now. It may have happened, you know yeah, what I mean? She'd be gone, she'd gone now. But anyway, I tell you, rest, um, anyway, one day after about three years, Neil, uh, I walked in, there was a fantastic lady, her name was Siobhan, she was a ward sister, and um, she had a little foot back, and she was massaging Katie's feet. And I looked into Kathleen's eyes, and I saw the glimmer. She was coming back. Now, she couldn't speak to us or anything. We used to go in, my sister and myself, and those of us, which, you know, those kind of kindergarten cards, tree, dog, mouse, cat. Yeah. Teaching her. Go away. Um, teaching her how to speak. Um, and gradually, over time, Neil, maybe two years later, she came around really, well, she started coming around, but it was a slow process. Very know? slow. But wh- but how is she now? She's blown clarny, happy out. And does she discuss anything of those days? Does she recall any of it? She doesn't recall any of that as such, only when she got better. But do you know what happened? She was able to recall way previous everything that she did in Cork. Isn't that amazing? Her long, long-term memory came back. Cool. And, yeah. But anyway, just to make a long story short, sorry, Neil. Um, where was I? She was below, yeah, she was coming around. Anyway, so eventually... She came around good enough that she, she's in a wheelchair still. But anyway, we said, we'll bring your mobile phone out to you and you'll be able to contact us. And we'll be able to contact you. And lo and behold, she was, and she literally had to learn how to speak, eat. They peg fed her for ages because she couldn't eat. And the dietitian used to come in every day and just massage her throat very gently to get her to eat something, you know. I know. Just. Amazing recovery, but at yeah. the time, okay, okay. Sorry, I don't, I don't mean to rush you, but I'm just like at the time were they saying that we will take her off life support in the morning, take away ventilation, yeah. and she will pass away. That was the yeah. intention of the. the that was it, yeah. We were on an off state. Okay, but she had a she had a completely different plan. Like she wasn't keen to be leaving her four kids just yet. She had three smallies and a, a girl in her twenties. But um, anyway, she eventually got well enough, Neil. Just to make a long story short, to um. Do you know the acquired brain injury people? They're fantastic. Like, and yeah. uh, they were, she was sent to a house in uh, Limerick where there were other brain victim injuries, you know. Yeah. And uh, she's been a couple of years there. And I'm not too sure how long she's been there, but she came on leaps and bounds, Neil. She even, they had a driver and everything. And she even came to visit me here in Tello. Uh, would you imagine that in her wheelchair? That's amazing. Amazing recovery. And yeah. Yeah, but just to finish it off then, she was a fabulous artist, fabulous nurse. Um, she, like, we're all artistic, and she was an oil painter and everything, you know. Did all that come and back? She, she learned how to do the whole lot of it again. She had to I, learn everything all over again for a second time. I, a painting belonged to her up in my bedroom wall here of wild elephants, and it's magnificent. Well, good for her, good for her. And anyway... 
make a long story short, yeah. she's gaying. She has, she's knitting, she's sewing, she's painting, she's making hairbands, and she's in a beautiful place in Killarney. Uh, do you know the Cheshire Homes? Yeah, uh, she, put us, she put us all to shame, the amount of things she fits into any given day. Yeah. Well, a lovely story, um, Alice. Thank you so much. Anyway, two sec- just two more seconds. Yeah. She, um, I FaceTime her every day, and she's amazing. She's in a wheelchair, and now... Obviously, it has taken its toll slightly on her, but she's one amazing person. She'd be delighted to hear it. I hope she gets to hear this conversation. She might be mortified, but very proud of it. Do, send send it on to her. All right. I spoke about this with somebody else uh, right. months and months ago. Okay, Alicia, um, look after yourself. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks so please. much for sharing. Cheers. Back after the break. The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 1850 104 106. Um, we chatted earlier with Eka Valenge and calls and texts following that conversation with her and the passing of her mother have um, resulted in many people sharing already either on the air or by uh, text. And I will come back to more of them, but I'm just conscious of people holding. Chloe, good morning. Hi Neil, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, your mum, Charlotte, uh, passed away. Was it last year? Yeah, it was uh, July uh, 2020. I, I don't know whether I know you, but I know your brother, the singer Gerald O'Hearn. Um, he's been in with me singing and playing quite a bit and he actually wrote a song about his, his mum, didn't he? I actually think he played it here in studio with me, if I'm right. Am I right on that? Yeah, that's correct. He uh, he wrote a song called uh, "It's Okay Not to Be Okay." That's right, beautiful song, and he played it live here for us. But tell me, what what do you wish to share with me regarding the passing of your mum? Because there are a couple of questions I want to ask you. Can I ask just one question before you before you start? You know, with regards to your your mum, d- did you ask? Did the family ask how long she had left, or did hospital staff tell you Wh- which was it? <coughs> So we kind of got called called into a family meeting, you know, and she had been quite unwell. But I suppose we still weren't really ready to get the the news that we were going to be told because we went to so many meetings beforehand and it would just tell us uh, the progression or how she's doing. But, but at, um, one, at, one, at one stage, when was the conversation that she only had a week left? Now, I believe she didn't know that, and I'll come back to that, but did you ask for a timeline? Um, yeah, I suppose my mum never wanted to go to any of the meetings with us. It was always just um, either my mum's sister, Deirdre, my um, my brother and myself, uh, Gerald, and my, my dad's name is Gerald as well. But um, I suppose she was in Maryland, and we kind of, they said that it was a short few days. So um, they said maybe seven to nine days. Right. And... Um, it was kind of mad because my mom was up in the room and she was so alert and so together. And like, even when we were, when we were coming back into the room, she'd be asking us, well, am I okay? Am I, am, am I dying? And we'd always be like, no, you're fine. You know, you're, do, you're doing well. And I suppose whatever we said to her then, she just swallowed that, you know. And um, yeah. I suppose my mom never wanted to know um, when things were getting serious. That's why she never came to the meetings with us yeah. but um, yeah. when we got that news then you know it was COVID time and the the, res- the visiting restrictions were in so um, my mum be big into family now and we have a big family so we said look we have to we have to get our home so we got told that like my mum mightn't even make the make that journey home and um, she actually was a homeless for, tr- for three and a half months 
Um, we got to do lovely things where we went to we went to Photo Wildlife Park. Um, we went to Mount Mallory for the day. Uh, she loved car car journeys, but she 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 didn't have a clue. Really, I, I suppose towards the end we were kind of saying, "Is she fooling us, or are we fooling her?" Because she was getting she's getting so sick, you know, and her body wasn't the way that it used to be, you know, and she could kind of see that. Yes, but, but um, three and a half months, they may not all have been fabulous months and fabulous days, but a, a large portion of them in the earlier part of it must have been wonderful for her. Oh, it's like, for the first two months having her home, I, myself and my brother were kind of like, and my dad, we were like, do, do they have it right? You know, that so she was doing so well, she was eating. As I said, it was COVID, but we, there were still visitors calling to the house, you know, obviously putting on masks, but geez, the people that called and were from the North Side ourselves, the people from the North Side, what they'd done for us, you know, with gifts and prayers and kind of calling. But um, I think It was a blessing that, that, you know, you managed to do that. And as opposed to saying, OK, well, if it's only a week and that went on to another week and another week and another week and she was inside in a hospital bed... You had a better option, you know. You took a better option, didn't you? Oh, definitely. It's the the best decision that we ever made. You know, I even seen her in the room when we when I was leaving. We, we were devastated having to leave, and the restrictions just weren't weren't for us. So I was I was like, we have to we have to bring her home. And as I said, like the cut over, she she said how she was saying how can I go, how am I left go home? I'm so sick, you know. And we were like, well. You can stay, but we'll only be able to do one hour visit, uh, one of us from the family every day. And she was like, yeah, it makes makes sense for me to come home. And did anyone ever have a conversation with your mum that actually she wasn't going to get better, no? There was was a few slips along the way, you know, with with some doctors. And it was just kind of so upsetting for her. She'd ask, you know, afterwards she'd be just crying and upset and she'd ask me and she'd be like, do you, do you think I'm going to die and uh, and I don't want to leave you and I don't want to leave your brother and she was saying I'm too young and, you know, I think that's when me and my dad said, look, we'll just, we'll, she doesn't need to hear this, you know, she's not strong enough for it, she was absolutely petrified. So, so you wouldn't respond to that, you wouldn't go there as a says. Yeah, I, and I think my mum, whatever we told her as well, she she really believed that she swallowed it, you know. She, I'd say, mum, I'd be like, look how good you're doing now, you know, because she went through so much, you know, blood transfusion, treatment, chemo. I'm like, look how look where you're after coming from, and look how you are now. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you're right, you know. And she trusted us, and we felt like that was the the right decision. And to she make slowly did she just slipped away at home then? In the end, is it? Yeah, like we had Panabel Care with us um, towards the end, you know, she, I suppose the first two months, kind of two and a half months were brilliant and then it was kind of eating, was becoming um, an issue and um, it was medication swallowing and like she was, she was so strong then as well and so where her mind she didn't want to get the the cash is it the cash there into yeah. herself? She said, "No, I don't want that. I don't. I don't want this." But, um, you know, I'm. We just helped her, got brought her in and out. But it, as she got weaker, and 
she had to get the, the morphine box on then, you know, and things kind of slow down then after that. But how would how would you change any of that when it comes to a discussion like, say, dying with dignity or allowing somebody to pick their own time to go and taking a drink and passing away? Would you change any of your mum's passing? Would she? Um, like, I suppose when it, when, when it got to the very end where she was in a coma, it was very hard to see her like that because my mum was very glamorous, you know, she was so young, uh, just huge personality, you know, just really caring person. I, it was it was devastating, you know, it's something that lives with you forever when you see them, you know, being like this for f- five days straight, you know, and family being around and kind of unresponsive, you know, and, you know, when it's at that stage, you think that... There should be no more suffering, you know, because yeah. she suffered for long enough. Yeah, yeah. But that person, in this case, your mother would have had to make that decision earlier in her life to say, if I if I end up like that, or that what you've just described, uh, help me along, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. Um, if it should be your own, like nobody knows the suffering and the pain that somebody else is having, then if you're going through it yourself, so... I think you should be up to yourself to make that call, definitely, yeah. All right, okay. Okay, Chloe, thoughts are with your mum, Charlotte. Regards to you and, and to Gerald and all of the family. Thank you so much for taking the call. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. I just, you know what, I just wanted to come on and talk about how strong and amazing person she was, even throughout the whole thing, you know, she was an absolute champ, you know. And I know, I, I feel just, as if I know, I know her because Gerald talked about her so much and she was in hospital listening one day when he was in here performing and that was lovely too, you know. Yeah, oh, too. she... She was so proud of Gerald's of Gerald's discipline as well. Um, <laughs> All right. Okay. Cheers, Chloe. Look after yourself. Take care. I'll pick it up in the morning, lads. Text 0868104106. You can email a story if you don't wish to come on air but would like to share. Uh, Neil at uh, redfm.ie. Um, Almost time to go. Before I go, can I just maybe change horses for a while? Because I'll leave you on a, you know, I mean, it's good to talk, but maybe leave you on a, on a slightly more happier, upbeat note. We have 250 euro vouchers every day this week and tomorrow a thousand euro to give away. Courtesy of ourselves and Michelle, the jewellers on Patrick Street. You know the drill. Diamonds are forever. 1-850-104-106. Callers 10 and 11. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at NeilRedFM. 104 to 106 Red FM. And you can text 0868-104-106. But uh, last bit of business. Bring on the cheesy music. It's time to play your cards right. Actually, this is fun. Television show on that. Call a tennis, Stephanie from Balancholic. Stephanie, good morning. Good morning. How art thou? Great. I've told you, you in a tough old year, if you won this, you'd buy yourself something nice with the voucher. Is that right? Well, I sometimes think you have to treat yourself too because you have to look after yourself before you look after other yeah. people. And this year That's has been it. a lot of looking after other people. Fair so. play to Put on your own life jacket first, they say. Gary's in Mallow. Gary, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Okay, you're going to do the right thing and give it up for all your sins and give the voucher to your wife. Is that it? I am indeed. <laughs> Proper order. I have 13 diamond cards. Stephanie was caller 10. I wish I had more time to chat, so she goes first. There are 13 diamond cards. Whoever gets the ace wins the 250 euro voucher or the highest card. So, Stephanie, give me a number between 1 and 13. Number 3. 1, 2... 
card number three. Oh, I like this one, lads. It's the Queen of Diamonds. Oh, just like myself. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Okay, so Gary, you've either got to get you've got to get the King of Diamonds or the Ace of Diamonds. All right. Okay. Give me okay. number between one and twelve. And uh, number nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and the count. It's the four of diamonds. Sorry, Gary. Oh, okay, no worries. Your wife will have to wait for another day. Try again tomorrow, all right? Okay, thank you. Cheers, my man. Well done, Stephanie. Congratulations. Go spend it on yourself and enjoy, all right? Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. That's courtesy of ourselves and Michelle, the jewelers. We'll play again tomorrow for a thousand euro. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.